Welcome to Dose, everyone. Big hello to our live audience. It is Sunday, June 12th, 1.02 p.m. here on the West Coast. Listening to some fluorescent gray right now, also known as Abby's brother, Robbie Martin. Excited to have our first call-in host on the show today. Everyone check out Gordon's work there, which you're about to hear a lot about. host, Abby Martin. Time to get dosed. Oost. Welcome to Dosed, everyone. This is your host, Abby Martin. Thank me. You love mushrooms. You love looking at them. You love eating them. You like finding them. And you love learning about them. And you probably already know that mushrooms are just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. Underneath these fascinating reproductive structures lies an entire alien world of communication, combat, and copulation. And most importantly for us and all other living things walking around here on Earth, these fungal networks create a symbiotic web that pretty much enables life as we know it to exist. Fungi are everywhere! They're not just underneath your feet, but you are right now, without a doubt, breathing them in, maybe several different species, at this very moment. This is a topic I knew I have always loved and knew I needed to, to talk to an expert about on Dosed, so I'm very excited to have Dr. Gordon Walker here with us today. Dr. Walker is our first guest who has his very own show here on Colin called Fascinated by Fungi which I encourage everyone to check out. But he's also brought his love of fungi to a huge audience with hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram and over 1.5 million followers on TikTok. TikTok! <laughs> TikTok! I'm a little bit of a boomer when it comes to the TikTok world, Dr. Gordon, so I'm very impressive with your huge following on there. His foraging and explainers have exposed many tens of millions to the wondrous and mysterious world of the fungal kingdom. Gordon earned his Ph.D. in biochemistry and molecular biology from UC Davis. He is also a board member for the Sonoma Mycology Association. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Gordon well, Walker. Thank you for having me, Abby. It's a pleasure to be here. So, for people who don't know, let's start here. Mm -hmm. Life on Earth is divided into five kingdoms. One mm -hmm. is Protista, which is just algae and a little protozoa. Mm -hmm. One is Monera, Monera, which is all bacteria. And then we have plants, animals, uh -huh. and fungi. Interestingly, mm -hmm. mushrooms were classified as plants until about the 1950s, which mm -hmm. was surprising, but I guess not too surprising. 
considering how how rapidly we're learning about them uh, in recent history. So I guess let's start with just explaining what is fungi and how is it distinct (laughs) as a kingdom? So there's above the kingdom classifications, there's this thing called domains. And that's that's sort of bacteria, which, you know, are in our guts, archaea, which are like the extremophiles that live in weird environments. And then everything else is what's called a eukaryote. And that is a... um, has organelles and is a more complex kind of cell. So animals, plants, fungi, all the things you mentioned are, except for the bacteria, are eukaryotes. And fungi are a divergence of the different kinds of eukaryotes. And it's still debated exactly when they split off, maybe like a billion or 1.5 billion years ago. And what fungi are in nature especially is focused on recycling carbon. So the biggest difference between plants and fungi, and this is where they finally like broke it down biologically, was that plants are called autotrophic, i.e. they make their own food from the energy of the sun. They do uh, photosynthesis and fix sugars. And fungi are taking all those sugars that exist and breaking them down into simpler sugars, which other stuff can eat. So they're sort of the master recyclers of our planet. That's incredible. So they they don't photosynthesize. They're more, I guess... If you were to compare them, would they be closer to the animal kingdom because they are they act similarly in terms yeah, of breaking down yeah. matter? And evolutionarily, they you know animals and fungi split from plants at a later date. So plants split off first, doing photosynthesis, and then fungi and animals they still split off you know over a billion years ago. So there's a wide difference there between uh, fungi and animals. But there's a couple commonalities, particularly that animals and not us as humans but animals like insects arthropods uh use a polysaccharide called chitin which has nitrogen in it so plants use cellulose to build their membranes and uh fungi will use this chitin molecule along with some insects and arthropods Uh, and so and then we also we similarly we're catabolic we break down organic matter to make energy so fungi just like us breathe and sweat and it's actually there's a really cool phenomenon known as gutation uh, which if you, anyone has seen my account, you know, I'm obsessed with this. But when mushrooms are young and they're growing really quickly, they'll be covered in these little droplets. And sometimes they take on beautiful colors from uh, the anthocyanins or the polyphenols and stuff in, in their flesh. And, you know, finding this little white knob covered in red droplets, it just looks absolutely unreal is, you know, it's sort of a life changing experience for people. Wow. So if if it weren't for fungi, we'd be like up to our ears and dead stuff, basically. Basically, yeah. <laughs> plants, and, and there was a period of time in theory and history where plants evolved this molecule called lignin, which cross-linked all the cellulose, and nothing had figured out how to break it down yet. So in theory, there's this big deposit of like coal, and that's in theory, this is where a lot of the coal on the planet came from. Um, that has since been, since been debated as to whether or not fungi not evolving the ability to grade lignin is why there's this layer of coal. But it looks like in history, there was a period where plants were kind of like ahead of fungi in this race in terms of like what they could build and what fungi could decompose. So I think that's kind of cool. I mean, man, I'm I'm blown away here. But everything that we're going to talk about is pretty mind blowing. <laughs> like, for example, how many species there are? And oh, like, just... how many have we discovered? Yeah, that's so. In, in these estimates vary widely. Um, I'm sure. Some recent things say, sort of estimating that there's anywhere from like two to about five million species of fungi, possibly significantly more. Because every time we like, if you take any inch of soil anywhere in the world and do like DNA sequencing on it, you will almost 100% discover a new species of fungi, probably new species of bacteria too. There's just that much biodiversity on our planet. Uh, 
But there's, I think there's something like 15,000 sort of recognized species of mushrooms with estimates of there being 40, 50,000 total, possibly more. But within that, there's just a huge, as you mentioned, fungi are ubiquitous. And that's, I want to draw the distinction there between like fungi versus mushrooms. Mm-hmm. All mushrooms are fungi, but not all fungi are mushrooms. Um, because within the fungal kingdom, you have all these other things like single-celled yeasts and rusts and often things that end up as like plant pathogens or like we have a lot of things that are part of our human microbiome that are not mushrooms. They're fungi. Um, there's things like lichens, which are like technically fungi, but also like living in association with uh, algae and cyanobacteria. So there's the fungal kingdom is just vast. And I, there's about nine different divisions, phyla within it. But there's really two that we care about that make mushrooms called ascomycetes and basidiomycetes. So. Okay. So how ancient are, or I guess is fungi on the evolutionary timeline? I was I was just googling this because I knew you'd ask me and I wanted to like make sure my facts were somewhat uh, up to date. And previously, it had been you know a fungi I think as a kingdom or as a yeah as a kingdom split off somewhere between one billion and one point five billion years ago. Uh, and then the the split between like you know fungi and animals was probably you know a couple hundred million years in in there. Um, so fungi are evolutionary ancient, very very old, uh, and and life would not. Essentially, plants would never have come to land if it wasn't for fungi, because there's always been this really intimate, close association between fungi and plants, because uh, plants will do the photosynthesis and make the sugar, and then fungi are really good at holding onto water and kind of making nutrients available for plants. So they've always been partnered up. Uh, mushrooms themselves used to be estimated about like four to five million, and now there's some new fossil evidence that says maybe it's closer to like seven or eight million years old. They found some older fossils of mushrooms, um, because mushrooms are small little gooey organic things they don't fossilize super well so it's harder to track them through like a fossil record versus bones or um, even plants which which fossilize better and then the, the split there between like ascomycetes versus basidiomycetes was probably like maybe three or four hundred million years ago um, so they're evolutionarily ancient and they've been around you know pangaea was covered in mushrooms and that's one of the things you see is around the world you see very similar types of mushrooms everywhere because they've been around for as long as there has, you know, been life on land, basically. Can you explain a little bit more about how that worked, evolutionarily speaking, um, in terms of the <laughs> split and also bringing life onto land, like from the water kind yeah. of thing? So, I mean, the, I guess the sort of theory on this has been that uh, life probably evolved in the ocean, most likely at deep sea vents and the interface of like little self-assembling RNA molecules in microcapsules of um, deep sea vents. And then for long periods of time, uh, everything like was making uh, sugars from doing photosynthesis and producing oxygen as a sort of toxic byproduct. And at some point, there became so much oxygen that other things were like, oh, crap, we're going to die because we can't handle this level of oxygen. But then uh, oxidative metabolism came along. And that was a way of doing business where you would actually use oxygen and make a lot more energy out of the sugar that you had. And that's where fungi really excelled at, at doing that. So like us, they're living, breathing uh, things versus using sunlight to make energy. Uh, and so as algae kind of progressed inland uh, into freshwater type things or onto land, uh, it couldn't live without water. So if a, you had a seasonal pool that formed, algae grew, and it dried out, all the algae would die. But if fungi came in there with them, because there are uh, fungi that live in the ocean, uh, and they were there to kind of hang out with the algae, the fungi could hang on to some of that water and potentially exchange water and nutrients to the algae or sort of to the plant ancestors uh, in exchange for sugar. 
And so there's always been this kind of give and go between fungi and plants and their ability to um, kind of antagonistically help each other out in this this way that's not always mutualistic, but you know sometimes they're sort of fighting each other, but they're they're working in each other's benefit ultimately. Uh, and then evolutionarily, like, divergence of stuff is just it's a schmear across all of time. You watch things that like all these little like tendrils go out and things die off and don't work. And just once in a while, something will work so well, it just keeps going. And that's kind of evolution in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. And what that is an interesting aspect of fungi is just like the reciprocity or like the reciprocal relationship that it has with so many different mm-hmm. types of things on earth and how functional it's you know it's served as like the foundation of a lot of the things that are around us that we just have no concept of because we can't see i mean a lot of this stuff going on right it's either happening underground or the spores are so minuscule that it's impossible to really tell like how vast this is and how fundamental it is to our lives but Mm -hmm. i want to go back to something that you just said because it's really fascinating the fact that um mushrooms you know exist all over the world of course and fungi has always existed and it's and it survived evolutionarily despite you know die-offs of things time and again which is interesting because you go back to the time of the dinosaurs and you know there was like huge insects and dinosaurs of course were very unique for that state of the world at that time um and is it true that around like 350 million years ago there were also like huge mushrooms (laughs) <laughs> so there was a thing called um, prototaxites, I think is the name of it. And they evolutionarily and like fossil record wise, they kind of look like giant mushrooms. And uh, this was before even the evolution of like vascular plants. So in theory, these were like the tallest organisms on Earth. Uh, yeah, I think this was yeah, uh, 3.6 to like, or 360, or what I'm trying to say. Uh, 360, 470 million years ago. Uh, and they were possibly like the biggest structures you'd see around. Um, How tall like are we talking about here? A meter to like, I think the estimate was up to like four meters. So you know, imagine something like you know, almost 20 feet tall. It's like the size of a, a small tree towering above you, but it would be sort of a giant mushroom, although they're also thinking that maybe they had like algal things that lived in them. So it would almost just be like an enormous lichen tree, sort of mushroom Whoa. lichen tree. Uh, and this is not totally clear because, again, it's hard to get fossils of these things. But, like, that's really cool. And part of me, well, could I take a slice off of that and, like, fry it up in a pan and eat it? What would that taste like? Right. Yeah. Like, what were we <laughs> talking about here? Like, what did, the, what did this thing look like? Man, I wish we could go back and, like, do yeah. some sort of, like, representation of what the hell these giant mushrooms look like. And why did they, why did they die out? What were they, what were they eating that they then got outcompeted? Or, you know, if you had something that was so successful and one of these main things on land, why don't we have those anymore? And know. yeah, why did they get so small in comparison? You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean that's pretty crazy to go from like twenty feet to just like a couple inches high. <laughs> you know, well, there's still some very large mushrooms out there, uh, and yeah. a lot of that has to do with just the amount of food that they get to eat. Uh, so some of the, some of the biggest mushrooms that are out there actually are these. I forget the name of the species, but uh, there are termites in Africa that essentially farm mushrooms. So the termites can't digest the wood, but they can eat mushroom mycelium. So all these leafcutter ants bring all this plant material into their colony. They're essentially farming mycelium to digest all of plant material. And then they eat the mycelium for food. But it means these big underground subterranean uh, termite mounds have huge amounts of mushroom mycelium sort of all throughout them. And then once in a while, these enormous mushrooms will erupt from the surface and spread more spores of that that mushroom all around into the environment. Uh, And those can be very, very large. So 
It's Holy just about, shit. you know, the, the base underneath. And again, like you said, like fungi are hidden and cryptic. And so we don't see them until we have this like physical eruption manifestation of this very tangible mushroom. But people always assume that like the mushroom is the thing that's alive. And it's like, well, the mushroom is more, it's like a fruit or a flower or quite literally, it's just a giant piece of genitalia there to spread spores. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. And some of it does mimic that as well, of course. Oh, yeah. um, and a lot of it can be, or like, I just was reading the other day about like some mushrooms are like dormant for like years and years and years. Mm-hmm. Like, um, like, uh, the hell is that annoying bug, the cicadas that like, you know, some oh, come yeah, out every yeah, 30 yeah. years uh, or whatever, brood, but it's like crazy. That- <laughs> yeah. Every 17 years. Yeah. Yeah, so so let's let's dig into that because I think sure. that is the most fascinating part about this is that what we know of as the classic mushroom is is really just the fruiting body, yes. and it really yep. is quote unquote the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what mushrooms are. Mm-hmm. So, like you know, I'm sure many people have seen that um, Netflix documentary, Fantastic Fungi, and mm-hmm. I know that there's a lot to say about that that I want to get into, but I think what I took away the most um, is that. There's this, you know, it really just shows you kind of the immense structure that exists below these fruiting bodies that we all kind of know and understand as mushrooms. And mm-hmm. um, and what I think it does a good job of is helping you visualize what goes on beneath our feet, this um, enormous web. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess just talk about that, like the vastness of the web of microbial networks that that lies beneath the fruiting bodies that we sure. see. So I guess the the first thing I want to say, there's sort of like three flavors of mushrooms when we think about like lifestyle type things. And there's there's a lot of nuance to this, but these are the three sort of basic categories. You have things that are uh, decay mushrooms, and that's called saprobic. And there's like different levels of saprobes, but basically those are things that are growing in dead plant material. So that's in wood chip beds, that's on a decaying log, that kind of thing. Uh, you have mushrooms that are parasitic. And so those are fungi that are parasitic so they're preying on something that's alive and you know if you have a tree in your yard that has a little like conch on the bottom of it that's technically a parasite um that conch mushroom might also end up being a saprobe when the tree dies so things can be parasitic and then become decay mushrooms and then you have uh what are called mycorrhizal associations and there are mushrooms that associate very intimately with the roots of uh, host plants, and usually it's trees, and these are called ectomycorrhizal mushrooms. And those are producing the things that we really like to eat, stuff like porcinis and chanterelles, truffles, etc. Uh, and that's a very intimate association there with, with that host plant. So you have this thing sort of eats dead stuff, this thing that can kill and then eat the dead stuff, and then this thing that's living more in symbiosis with a living plant. Uh, and those are sort of the, the, the differentiations of things. So when we think about, when people talk about that mycorrhizal network, usually they're referencing the ectomycorrhizal mushrooms in like a forest that are helping with nutrient exchange because all of these trees are sort of buying into what um, Dr. Suzanne Simard coined as, as the, like the wood wide web, this idea that there is this underground subterranean network of uh, mycelium where carbon is being shuttled from tree to tree. And it's a little bit like our human social security nets in that trees, these are arbitrary numbers, but trees produce 100% of carbon. They send 20% down to their roots, to these mushrooms. And they're, it's always been like, well, why would you give up all this sugar? You're, you're hurting your own growth. And the truth is because helping other trees, especially as a tree, when you live in a population of trees that are all genetically similar, is really just helping yourself. You're helping everything around you is also helping you to benefit. So paying in the social security network supports you and your neighbors. And if you need to draw differentially on this, this network, you can take 
you know, give more in the summer when you're making lots of sugar and there's lots of sun. And then maybe in the winter, you can draw some carbon back out when you say, hey, I need to like, I need a little bit. I'm on lean times. So let me get a little carbon back kind of thing. So it's not, it's uh, the give and go there is, is always there in nature. Well, it's interesting. I, I see there's two different books, The Hidden Life of Trees and The Secret Life of Trees. I've, oh, yes. I've read The Hidden Life of Trees, oh, but I, okay. I think it's, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm assuming it's the same concept because it talks exactly about this um, this web that you're discussing mm-hmm. and how for the benefit of the entire forest, I mean, like, for example, the trees will use the mycelium network to keep, like, dead trunks alive, that you could see mm-hmm. trunks that just sustain itself just by sheer virtue of having these fungal networks exchange the carbon and, and feed into all of this mm-hmm. for the benefit, the health of the entire, an entire like common forest, yeah. which is just absolutely amazing. Right? <laughs> the thing, the thing we as humans always think so individualistically, right? We are everything about us is we're just little bags of proteins and flesh and all these things, but we have distinctive ends, right? We have fingertips, we have toes, we have head, eyes, sensory organs, and plants aren't, you know, they have distinctive tissues, but more often than not, you know, two plants might be like essentially copies of each other. And we as human beings don't have that. We have like identical twins, but even identical twins are individuals. And so plants are more closely connected to each other in that way. And then fungi are the thing that like really links them together in a very physical, tangible sense that they're able to exchange carbon, nitrogen, nutrients, even like uh, chemical signaling molecules to sort of literally talk to each other and communicate across this mycorrhizal fungal network, which is their their kind of common language. And then within that, the other mind-blowing thing is within that mycorrhizal network, there's different species that are all potentially contiguous with each other. So there's linked in pieces of mycelium that are sharing like actual like vascular, you know, interstitial fluids, but they're different organisms. And then there's ones that also compete and they kind of go against each other a little bit like, you know, tug of war kind of thing. Um, and then within that, there's a whole community of bacteria and other fungi. So it's like creating that entire network is so much more complex than sort of just being like mycelium is the internet. No, it's, it's mm-hmm. this entire underground ecosystem that is like secondary, tertiary, like layers and layers of complexity and depth to what's happening in the soil and what's happening between plants. Um, and this is where most people kind of check out and go, that's, I don't, it's just too much. And so we, we stick with the concept of like, mycelium is like the internet. And people are like, I can understand that, you know. <laughs> I can, I can, I can, yeah, I can conceptualize that. that. Even, though I st- the, even though they still have no idea what the fuck the internet well, is. Like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a series of tools. Nor do right? I. Yeah, it's a series well, of tubes created by Al Gore. Mycelium is literally just a series of tubes. That's fungi <laughs> and, and mushrooms are, are made, mycelium is made of this stuff called hyphae, which are little tubular cells. And they're wrapped in chitin, they're wrapped in these beta-glucans, they're wrapped in some proteins, but basically they're cells that have an ability, an extreme ability to swell with water and uptake lots of things from their environment where they excrete enzymes into where they are. So like fungi don't hunt down food the way that animals do, but they can seek it out and then they live in it. And so like imagine just living in your food. And I'm not talking about like being a slob and being covered in Cheetos while you lay on the couch. You know, it's like... (laughs) You you have to live and breathe where you eat and shit too. So you know you have to learn ways to deal with the fact that you're producing waste products. You have to deal with the fact that like your food around you might get eaten up, and you have to keep seeking out new sources of food. Uh, and then also like as you seek out new sources of food, what you left behind will die off unless you continue to feed it and communicate with it. Uh, so fungi is just this. It's an insane way of life. You know, there's a a great book written by my friend Merlin Sheldrake. 
uh, called Entangled Life. And in that, he has a quote where he says, mycelium is a way of life that challenges the animal imagination. Because like I said, like mycelium has no ends or beginnings. It is this like in plurality incarnate it just keeps going and it has like a thousand different leading tips and each one of those things can make a decision and yet coordinate these decisions across this massive network and a process called network intelligence uh, where fungi and even slime molds show this like level of like memory and uh cognition that is scary to us because we're like oh god i don't want to think about things in the soil being able to like think about what they're doing yeah wait <laughs> explain know? that what it's it's almost network intelligence is a it's a complicated thing i think it comes from like even computing when they look at like you don't have like a central brain processing unit but across many different like decision things you can kind of like parse out you know what is good and what is bad like oh there's food over here i'll move towards that oh there's enemy or toxins over here i'll move away from that uh, and then they can maintain memory. There's a, a scientist, Lynn Body, who's done some really cool stuff where she had mycelium on a plate and put out like a block of wood. So mycelium grew towards the block of wood. Then she removed the block of wood, wiped away the mycelium, put back a different block of wood. And instead of like initially the mycelium had grown in all directions searching for something. But after it had been wiped away, it didn't grow out in all directions. It grew right back to where that block of wood was. So it maintained an ability to display memory, even though it's just this like white fuzzy stuff and there's no brain, there's no eyes, there's no like sense organs. How, how does it do that? You know, how does it do that? Well, that's, that's network intelligence. And there's molecularly, there's like little sensors and these, you know, uh, bacteria and other microorganisms often do what's called trophing. So they troph towards something. They're like, Ooh, I need light. I'm going to grow towards that. Ooh, there's nutrients. I'm going to grow towards that. And there's little receptors on the surface of a cell that can like pick up absolutely minute amounts of molecules to say, okay, there's the right thing is in this direction. Uh, but again, mycelium tends to grow out in all directions until it finds what it's looking for. And then it puts all its effort into what's nourishing, which I think is a good lesson for us as humans, right? Explore all directions. But when you find your thing, that's your thing. Go all in on it. There's so much that you just said that I, I want to touch on. So let's start with, <laughs> let's go back to the trees really quick because sure. the communication through the book is really through this web, right? The, this, this web that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so I guess how, like, so the, these networks are utilizing like when the trees basically communicate that they are in danger from a certain enemy or something that that's mm -hmm. eating them and they can emit like radar or um, pheromones they do a or lot something. Of, uh, and, and is that is so that's messaging system is happening through this network as well. Right. Well, it happens to the air to plants, um, you know, the smell of cut grass. Uh huh. So the smell of cut grass is molecules called pyrazines, which are these very sort of green. The smell of like uh, canned green beans or asparagus or cut grass are pyrazines. And I, I know this from my background in, in wine science stuff, but pyrazines are plant defense molecules that they use to aromatically communicate to their neighbors that like, hey, I'm being munched on. Maybe you should fold your leaves Whoa. in so that you don't get munched on or you're less, you know, more resistant to being munched on kind of thing. Oh, um, wow. So there's, there's that volatile transfer. But then within, yeah, within those mycorrhizal networks, there's some evidence that hormones move around. There were some really cool experiments done with like tomato plants where they had, uh, they blocked off the tomato plants with like um, kind of glass tubes around them so they couldn't communicate through the air. They couldn't do that volatile chemical communication through the air, but they were linked underground through the mycorrhizal network. And they were able to look, show that like if you hurt one plant, the other plant would respond as if it were being hurt without any chemical communication through the air, but it was happening then through the, the mycorrhizae, through the, um, the roots. 
Wow. And, and when you say that there are several species that, that compete, I guess that, that inner competition is overridden by the overall goal, which is the transference of, you know, nutrients. So it's like, well, I mean, that that's complicated. And that's where stuff breaks down. Cause you like understanding the, the dynamics of like mycelium in soil is really complicated. Cause even like there's ectomycorrhizal mushrooms, which I mentioned. Um, and there's a, a great stat that let's say like 85 to 90% of vascular plants on this planet have a fungal associate on their roots. But only about three or four percent of those actually have ectomycorrhizal mushrooms. Everything else has what's called. Break that down for like the layman, because I I don't know what that means. So so like almost all plants have fungi associated with the roots and and forming what's called mycorrhizae, which is essentially like a fungal sheath on a, a root of a plant, which massively increases the surface area of the root. So the more surface area you have, the more water nutrients you can uptake. And fungi, because they grow these little tubular hyphae, have so much surface area that when they colonize a root, you can watch a plant go from like struggling to suddenly being very healthy because it can take up so much more water and nutrients from the soil. So these are, this is what I was talking about is that intimate association between plants and fungi. Almost all plants have mycorrhizae, which is these, you know, roots, the fungal roots, basically. That's incredible. Within um, that, though, there's mm-hmm. ectomycorrhizal, which is the things that form mushrooms, and that's only like 3 or 4% of those associations. Everything else is what's called arbuscular mycorrhizae, uh, which is part of phyla called glomer mycota. But basically, they don't produce mushrooms. They're just making little root hairs, uh, and that's most plants have that. And then within that mycorrhizal network, there's both both kinds of mycorrhizae potentially like communicating and potentially transferring. And that's that's where my understanding of this stuff breaks down a little bit. It's like, I don't know how stuff moves from one plant to another. We can demonstrate that that's true through like radio labeled carbon. And that's what Suzanne Simard and and her partner uh, Dan did. But I don't know how it works when you have all these different kinds of mycorrhizae in the soil. Um, But it's, it's amazing and we want to study it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, now I know what you do, why you do what you do. Uh, So let's talk about fantastic fungi because I want to understand the network that we're talking about and how mm-hmm. vast it is. And would you say that that is like an accurate representation, mm-hmm. like electrical yeah. currents that it shows, but, but just the vastness, because I think we know like the root systems of trees are obviously like much more extensive than what you see in mm-hmm. front of you, the tree itself, of course, underneath the soil. But how, how vast are we talking about here? Because people think of the blue whale as the largest organism on right. earth. Um, but right. I, we, I think many of us have heard of that statistic of like this huge mushroom network that exists in the state of Oregon that yeah, is actually the fungus. largest uh-huh. thing, right? Yeah. I went there last fall, actually. We went, went up and filmed a mini documentary about it. It's a um, gigantic patch of uh, honey mushroom mycelium. It's Armillaria ostoyae. And I think it's about 3.5 miles in diameter. Uh, and when we talk about this, remember that most of the stuff is pretty close to the surface. Even plant roots generally don't go that deep into the soil. Like most tree roots and things are fairly close to the surface. So much of the mycorrhizal uh, diversity and a lot of the microbial diversity we talk about is probably in the first like five, 10 feet of soil at most, maybe even the first like three or four feet of soil where a lot of the roots are. Uh, And in terms of diversity and like the extension of these networks like like i said if you took like a cube a little one inch cube of soil there's like and you know just healthy soil there's like more mycelium in there and and length of mycelium in there uh you know you can stretch it out for miles and miles and miles and miles because there's just so many of these little microscopic threads so 
soil, <laughs> soil as a whole is essentially glued together by fungus and, and mycelium. And if you take that away, that's when we get dust bowl. That's when, like, our modern agricultural mm. practices where we dump on tons of chemical fertilizers and we use fungicides on the soil. And they're like, why is all our soil turning to dust? You're like, because you just killed all the mycelium that was essentially acting as, this, like, this glue, this sponge to keep everything together and to form the basis of this uh, e ecological network, their keystone species, for everything else to live on in, in terrestrial ecosystems. So according to Scientific American, this fungus is estimated to be around 2,500 years old, but mm -hmm. could be as ancient as 9,000 yeah. years old, which would earn it a place not only as the largest organism on Earth, but one mm -hmm. of the oldest living organisms yeah. as well. So talk more about you going and studying this and doing this short <laughs> documentary. I mean, this is all the same guy, right? Like this is, this is one species mm -hmm. that exists across 3.5 miles miles yeah and it's and it's huge um it we went up there and we had sort of a rough location on the map of where it is and we took us about three days to actually figure out how to get there because there are you know some of the roads were inaccessible one of the ways we were going up we just ran into a bunch of snow this was like mid-october we didn't expect it to be snow all over the place but there was uh and we eventually after a flat tire and several other misadventures did get up to this giant patch of it and we're like we come in and I was like, oh, maybe there's going to be mushrooms everywhere. We get up there, there's not a mushroom in sight. Whoa. And that's one of the things that like really blows your mind. You're like, I just got to the largest organism in the world. It's one of the oldest organisms in the world. And I don't see it. <laughs> you don't miss a blue whale, right? A blue whale is pretty tangible. But this is a great sort of lesson in like, well, this is fungi. Um, what I could see that I thought was very cool is as we approached this, there were big old trees and there was this interface where there was a lot of younger trees. So armillaria, honey mushrooms, uh, are strongly parasitic pathogenic mushrooms. And what they do is they have uh, mycelium that's been weaponized and it's, it turns these things called rhizomorphs. And they're kind of like these black evil looking tendrils that crawl through the soil. They're covered in melanin, so they're all blackened and they crawl up between the uh, bark and like the wood of a tree and they girdle the tree. So they cut off the flow, the xylem and the phloem. They suck all the nutrients out of the tree. They kill the tree and then they eat its dead body. And then they send out more rhizomorphs to go kill other trees. So they're, they're what are called meadow makers because they literally like mow down entire forests of like old growth and they can let younger trees come up. But if any of those trees get a little bit weak, the armalaya will go back and attack it and kill it. Uh, so we got to this point where I could see this very clear boundary between old trees and younger trees. And I was like, wow, I am like standing on the edge of this enormous patch of an organism. And as I went a little further in, I would go look at these dead trees and be like, yep, there's rhizomorphs. There's these little black tendrils all over them. So that's what I could see. And I was like, I know I'm in the right spot. I know this mushroom's here. It's just not fruiting at this exact moment because, you know, it's the conditions weren't quite right for it. But, you know, we, we did find some at a little lo lower elevation. Uh, which was vindicating to actually find the thing we went looking for. But, uh, you know, it's, it's wild. Yeah, you need you something could, for B-roll. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we got it eventually. It was, it was, it was a harrowing moment. You're like, wow, we drove all the way up here. We spent like three days filming and a single thing. You <laughs> could have filmed yeah. anywhere and yeah. just yeah. said that you were there. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we got it at the last moment, so I, I hope it's a good one. Um, the interesting thing, though, so you mentioned it being really old. So most organisms have things called telomeres. 
And that's essentially like if you think of, um, you know, a genome, you have a little like X chromosome kind of thing. Everyone's seen the picture of that. Uh, every time you divide your chromosome, um, there's ends. And when you divide it, those ends get shorter and shorter and shorter. And if you start degrading your chromosome, then you die. So telomeres are kind of like, uh, you know, on the end of a shoelace, that little plastic part on a shoelace. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what a telomere is. It's this like extra buffer zone that when you replicate your DNA, the telomere can get shorter without your chromosome getting affected. But eventually as you age and your cells go through a certain number of divisions, your telomeres get shorter. And that's ultimately what kill. If cancer doesn't kill us, you know, shortening of telomeres will eventually kill pretty much any living thing because your, your chromosome starts degrading and then you can't replicate and keep going. For some reason, unknown reason, this Armillaria ostoiae, its telomeres don't get shorter. So its shoelaces will last forever, basically. <laughs> and that's amazing to us because we're like, I don't, there's not many organisms that you can say that for. Uh, so that it's able to have gotten so, it's able to get so big because it's so old. Many other patches of mycelium could grow out for many years in a row, but would eventually die out. And that's why they do sexual reproduction because mycelium is growing sort of what's called vegetatively, clonally through the soil. And then when it creates a mushroom, it's, it's reproducing sexually, and those new sexual spores go out and seed new patches of mycelium and kind of continue the species' evolution as you go through. So, Gordon, the really – so this big, you know, almost four-mile in diameter mm-hmm. uh, mushroom that you know, also goes very deep, as you were saying. It's not mm-hmm. just like the width well, of it. And, it's it's uh, not that deep in the soil. I think that's mm-hmm. the interesting thing. It's probably only a couple feet deep, but it is just mm-hmm. so wide. There's so much mass to it that, that makes it the biggest one. And is this, like, I'm still trying to understand this. Is this, like, literally one individual organism and not, like, you know, like, you go in the woods and there's, like, a patch of, like, blackberry bushes and, mm-hmm. like, there's just, like, this big field of blackberries. They're all, like, kind of different and, you know, mating with each other, all that stuff. But, like, this one big guy, like, it's an it's, individual? It's Yeah, and that's how they mapped it. They went around and did all the soil sampling to map sort of the edges of the, the boundaries of this thing and said, wow, genetically, this is all one organism that has just continued growing out in this massive circle, essentially. It's, you know, have you ever seen a fairy ring on like a lawn? You see a little ring of mushrooms? Yeah. That's, that's underneath. There's just a patch of mycelium growing out in a circle. And the mushrooms are fruiting on the edge of the circle because they're trying to expand the circle. This is that, but on like a insanely large scale. <laughs> why does it, why do I only see fairy rings like very rarely? Like what, what is the deal with that? Because if it's just the way that they're reproducing with the spores oh. why isn't that like everywhere when, where mushrooms are well mushrooms are i like to think about like the conditions for them to want to fruit is a little bit like imagine if you've like been in a sound studio and seen those insane like mixing boards that producers use mm-hmm. mushrooms fruiting need all of those little like you know dials and knobs and you know sliders to be in just the right place to go and so the temperature has to be right, the humidity has to be right, the time of year has to be right, the sun exposure might have to be right, the like rain they've gotten has to be right. There's all of these things they have to have, you know, usually mushrooms of fruit as they're starting to run out of food. So often you'll see them in this sort of seasonal arc that for a lot of the year, they'll be growing and eating and digesting things. And then when the part of the year that they produce a mushroom, they're starting to run out of food. So they're going to take all their last bit of energy, pump it into producing some mushrooms, creating these spores, and then making sure that they'll be able to go through the same cycle again next year. Talk about fantastic fungi and what what misconceptions maybe came out of how <laughs> this underground network really does work, because it definitely shows it way 
it, it honestly looks like the ocean, yes. like how yeah. fast it is it's, and how it's deep it is. It's an awesome illustration and it's beautiful. Uh, uh-huh. And the I electric think, yeah. electricity. Right. Right. And it. I, okay. So the first thing I want to say is Louis Schwartzberg is an amazing filmmaker and he made a beautiful movie with some incredible time-lapse footage. I wish it hadn't been called Fantastic Fungi because it's not really a documentary about mushrooms. It's more about psychedelics, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which is fine. But you know, it's a it's a different thing. Uh, and there's some there's I think my favorite part of the whole movie is a, the interview with Eugenia Bone, who does a really really g- good job of kind of explaining like what a mushroom is. And her book Mycophilia is one of like my top reading recommendations for anyone who's who's interested in mushrooms. Uh, I think and and Merlin Sheldrake says this in his book too. But he's like the idea of mycelium being like the internet is a really good gateway concept. It fails to accurately describe what's happening, and it fails to accurately like capture the complexity of these mycorrhizal relationships uh but it's a good place to start in terms of your understanding if you're trying to just think about it uh what they show in that movie is a tree with this vast network of sort of shining uh you know silvery threads in the soil and that that is sort of a accurate representation of mycelium but it's hard to know like when and where different species start uh, it's hard to know the nutrient exchange that's happening. It's hard to know how deep they go as well, um, because like you can core down into soil and like whether or not you're getting genetic signature for things is kind of um, tricky, I guess, as you get like deeper and deeper in a stratification of soil. Uh, and like I said, I think most of the microbial load that exists in soil is probably in the first like five feet of soil. So it doesn't necessarily go that deep because roots aren't always going that deep. Uh, so I think... The Fantastic Fungi movie does a really good job of being a gateway concept and gets you hooked because you're like, oh my God, look at these mushrooms grow. It's incredible. Um, my hope is that people see that and then want to go out and learn more too because that's that's always the best way to learn is to start learning yourself. It is a good gateway film, especially just seeing the incredible and extraordinary B-roll of the um, time-lapse footage, like you mm-hmm. said. I mean, mm-hmm. just that alone is just like mm-hmm. absolutely incredible. Um, and yeah, the gateway to understanding these underground networks and how they operate. I do think that there was a disservice in the sense that it, it focused way too much because I found it most fascinating when it was just talking about what we're discussing and kind of elaborating more on these concepts. And then when it focused, ultra focused on the psychedelic aspect and kind of the over promising of how mushrooms are kind of the solution for a lot. Right. But yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. But I did think it was a, an extremely good visualization of just the vastness and the array mm-hmm. of, of different mushrooms and how fascinating. I mean, there's mushrooms that like glow in the dark. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, just incredible stuff there that I, I still highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll definitely check that book out. So let's get back to the communication stuff because yeah. I read um, an article about a study from the University of the West of England. Yes, on these electrical yeah. signals that says this is I don't even understand how to comprehend this so you need to break this down for us it says <laughs> I, that yeah, they yeah. may have found 50 different quote unquote words <sighs> and yeah. that the fungal word length quote yeah. closely matched those of human languages okay so so first of all there's one guy who has been publishing about this stuff for a while and it's one guy. This isn't like a consensus within the scientific community. There's one guy who figured out that you can hook up electrodes to a, a mushroom and get back electrical outputs from a mushroom. This isn't new. We've known this for, you know, 50, 60 years. Um, it works with plants, too. And the same sort of thing. If you put electrode on a plant and you, like, 
hit the plant, you get a signal. If you yell at the plant, maybe you'll get a signal. If you cause some sort of disturbance, you may see some sort of spike in electrical activity as if the plant or mushroom or something is responding to something that you did to it. Is it really responding? Maybe. But like the inference here has been that because humans use electrical signaling, a lot of animals use electrical signaling as a way of like passing nerve impulses, that this must be a sign of intelligence and language in plants and, and fungi. Uh, and recently this has been confused. I don't know if there's like products like plant wave and other things. And essentially they're like little synthesizer things that have an electrical, um, pickup and they'll hook it onto a plant and then it runs these binary on-off signals of like the plant or the mushroom through a synthesizer, which then a human being controls the noise that comes out of it. So if you're like, oh, plant music or mushroom music, this is just someone has taken a synthesizer and they're using the on-off signals from the plant or the mushroom and then their own synthesized music and saying this is like mushroom music, even though it's their programmed thing. So this confuses people and people think that mushrooms make music. They don't. They <laughs> have, they ha all living things have some amount of electrical activity. That's just what living things do. Yeah, but here's some mushroom stuff. music right now. Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, yeah. Pink oyster mushroom hooked up to a synthesizer. Is that is that Michael Loco? I think that's one of the guys I, I follow on TikTok. He's it's a, I think so. It's like the yeah. top the top one he's, that comes up. He's a who. He's he's a funny guy. Noah Noah's interesting. But there's other people who make different synthesizer noises, so it all sounds different depending on who's programming the synthesizer. But I still don't um, get how the electrical signals are different. Okay, so I mean, yeah. So what what he did, and I I I tried to talk about this in a podcast about fungal communication, and I. You know, I did my best to kind of talk about it. I wasn't trying to debunk him. I was just trying to bring like a skeptical science point of view because, again, consensus in science is a little bit like a bell curve in that if you have a bell curve, the consensus is generally the highest point on the bell curve is where the consensus for something is. If you have people who are on the margins of that bell curve, on the, the outliers, there's not usually a lot of consensus for what they say. So there's one guy that for a while has been an outlier saying that like fungi use electrical signals as language. And he did an experiment where he essentially uh, took a couple different mushroom types of mushroom blocks and connected these electrical up, you know, upticks on them and look and recorded over periods of time and adding some stimuli um, the the patterns of electrical stuff. And then he did a whole bunch of math. He basically took all of this sort of algorithmic stuff and said, okay, these patterns of electrical signals are then um, similar he created a language basically out of this algorithmic like math thing. And somewhere in there, if you read his paper, he will admit, he's like, this is a little far fetched basically, but here's what I think. <laughs> and you're like, well, that's never a good thing. If you read a scientific paper and someone is essentially admitting that, like they might be making this. All up. <laughs> um, I think, I think what he's doing is really interesting work, but I do think that like headlines and news outlets like to take a headline like that and be like, mushrooms have languages and then run with it without ever really critically looking at like the work that was done. Uh, so in theory, what he did was just take electrical impulses and apply a whole bunch of math and then try to say that this is language. Uh, it's not really, and he didn't really look at it. Like he didn't like do stuff to them and then look at the types of like responses and then try to say, well, this type of electrical impulse equals this, you know, fire or cold or whatever. Um, and maybe there'd be more to it. If he keeps doing this work, he'll be able to show some of these particular electrical impulses are associated with particular stimuli. And I think that would be cool or bringing two mushroom types together and looking at the crosstalk between them and defining these electrical impulses. Um, what has been propositioned as a more likely form of actual fungal communication rather than electrical signaling 
is uh, the, the idea that electrical signaling is the communications comes from the fact that that network intelligence thing I mentioned, like imagine having a body that's 3.5 miles wide. How the hell do you communicate, right? Mm-hmm. That you're too far away to have communication. They don't have walkie talkies. They don't have technology. And yet they can sort of, uh, across a patch of mycelium decide which way to grow. Cause they can, some guy on the far left says, Hey, there's food over here. And some guy on the far right's like, well, there's not so much food over here. How do they talk to each other off across such a wide distance? And that's why they've propositioned the idea of electrical signals. Cause electrical signals move a lot faster than like the, the flow of chemicals through just straight, um, cellular mass kind of thing. What I read about recently that I thought was really cool was that in blocks of mycelium, there are like specialized um, tubes. Um, you know, have you seen those uh, in a building where they have those little tubes? You take the little message, you can put it in the tube and it goes, yeah. and it gets sucked up. Yeah. It's almost like that in mycelium. If the, if the building was a mass of mycelium, there might be these specialized tubes that run a lot faster. They're a lot skinnier. They're a lot shallower. And they, they don't, you know, take this giant circuitous route. They just go straight from like side to side or from node to node where then they're then able to move signaling molecules and communication molecules across the mycelial network much, much faster than the flow of straight cytoplasm. And to me, that makes more sense as to like, maybe this is how fungi are coordinating decisions um, because they have these sort of specialized hyphal tubes that are essentially using like communication tubes rather than it being electrical impulse this is all up in the air and there needs to be a lot more research on this stuff. But that's, that's from what I read. That's kind of what I took away from it. And describe how they fight and seek out food, like fight over food and seek out food, because that's incredible to me. (laughs) Uh, I mean, again, this is something where like fungi can have the capacity to like read each other and say, Hey, I think we're friends or Hey, we're not um, in competition or they might meet each other and say, Hey, fuck you. This is mine. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and they'll go through some chemical warfare, uh, and they'll be excreting, um, molecules or enzymes that might actively degrade their neighbor because they're, they're doing chemical warfare with each other constantly. They, fungi in general are doing chemical warfare with everything around them all the time, uh, because they, like I said, they live in their food. So what would happen to us if it starts raining? What's our choice? We could go inside we could hide we could put an umbrella we could put a coat on we could we could do any number of things to get out of the rain but fungi because they generally can't really move their only option is to say well we're going to just make it work so they have this capacity to transform their environment um they might sit in place and just create a cell wall that can now resist rain they might they'd like grow a raincoat basically or they'd they grow a shelter over themselves or they'd burrow down right where they are into something that is a little more sheltered. And so they're constantly changing the environment around them to suit their needs. And as part of that, they're shifting the relationship with other organisms around them too, because they're shifting things for them. And other organisms are either like, well, we're going to, we're going to get killed by this, or we're going to adapt to this. And so fungi may even be like farming their own communities around them, because that's what can survive with them. (laughs) And so, yeah, I mean, I just remember, I don't know if it was from fantastic fungi or another documentary but just seeing mm-hmm. how like they can create like a barrier of defense mm-hmm. like on a you know on a log or something and like i mean that's just nuts like they actually <laughs> are actively like warring battle lines yeah. are drawn <laughs> yep i mean have you ever seen coral doing this in uh, sort of time lapse 
Corals no. will go back and forth. It's, re- it's really, really cool. You can watch this like line between two different, you know, species of coral kind of going back and forth or like even, you know, one will just be beating the other. But it's it's a sort of slow movement uh, as things are, are fighting each other. And fungi, in theory, do fairly similar things. It's a lot harder to see and measure because this is inside of things where we don't get to see it you know it's you have ant colonies where you can like slice away half the ant colony and watch it do its thing that's really hard to do with with fungi and with mushrooms because it might be in a log and there's all this stuff happening in a log but all we see is a log and even Mm. if you cut it in half you're not necessarily going to see mycelium is so sort of microscopic you don't get to see these things actively kind of growing and doing their stuff Um, there is some stuff like our malaria the honey mushroom mycelium is actually bioluminescent so the the mushrooms aren't but their tendrils, their mycelium will literally glow at night, which is which is pretty cool. So in that way, oh, the the biggest it. organism on on Earth that that one is bioluminescent. I don't know if the mycelium of that particular oh, okay. species is bioluminescent. It might be, but I just know that if you go out and find a log that's been killed by honey mushrooms, and you like crack off a piece, and it's nighttime and it's really really dark, you can see it glowing green Ooh. in the wood, which is pretty cool. Um, I have a question of something it was a couple of years since i heard this so i might be mm-hmm. slightly remembering it wrong i know but one of um abby and i's favorite podcasts is a uh, bbc in our time science and there was an episode on fungi we listened to a few years ago but i remember one of the scientists there explaining that um you know like human reproduction is like fairly simple right you get someone with an xy chromosome someone mm-hmm. with an xx chromosome and then you can reproduce but mm-hmm. fungi it's like far more extensive than that and this is where oh, i'm going to butcher the fact but like yeah, yeah, say yeah. for example there's fungi that have a instead of having xy or xx it's like xxy xxyx and they can only reproduce with yyxxxyx <laughs> or xxy or like in all these different variations yeah, yeah, yeah. so like am i remembering yeah. that right is that yeah true? sort of yeah there's um i mean I, I often will go out and say, you know, fungi are non-binary and queer as fuck. And that's, it's, it's a little bit of a joke and it's a little bit of an anthropomorphization. But uh, essentially, fungi don't have true genders, at least not binary genders. They have what's called mating types. So these are genes that you need. Uh, in yeast, it's really simple. So Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is what makes bread, wine, beer. It's probably the most used organism for human food production. That's a fungi. Uh, that's a fungi, yeah. It's it's not a mushroom. It's a single-celled fungi. It's an ascomycete, and it's it's what I did majority of my PhD research on, uh, and it's been a, a model system in molecular biology for you know the last hundred years. It is it's sort of the organism that everybody cuts their teeth on when they're first learning about genetics and some of these other things. And it's and it's a eukaryote, so things that happen in yeast are applicable to things that happen in in humans. Uh, and that's an interesting thing too, is that humans and fungi have enough like basic cellular processes in common that it's hard to use like fungicides that don't also hurt human cells because many Whoa. of our fundamental processes are similar. Um, anyhow, so so yeast have two mating types, and this is essentially a gene where you can have you know on the genome it's either an A or an alpha, and the idea is it's it's sort of male female, and there's like a, a giving and a receiving end of this A and alpha relationship. Um, and they named them A and Alpha because they didn't want there to be any kind of like patriarchal uh, dominance type thing. They were going to name them A and Alpha because they're both like they're both the thing. You know, it's not A and A and Beta. It's it's A and Alpha. Uh, and so you need to form a a diploid yeast. You have two haploids. So this is like we as human beings are diploid organisms. We have two copies of our genomes. Our gametes, our sperm and eggs, have one copy. As human beings, we can't live outside of being a diploid. Our sperm and our eggs die outside of our body. They don't live a life on their own. 
fungi are really weird because they can live as haploids. There's lots of things, there's lots of mushrooms that will live just happily as like a mold in the soil or maybe like an endophyte little like organism living inside a plant tissue when it's a haploid. And then when it comes together with another haploid and these mating types fuse together, then you get a diploid and you form a mushroom. But this is where fungi are really weird because like you, yeast is easy. There's A and alpha, but then there's other species where there's like A and alpha and then like B and beta and like, you know, all these different combinations of things. And like you said, you can start mixing and matching different mating type alleles to get literally thousands of combinations, thousands of sort of quote unquote genders. And so, well, yeast has two, uh, something like this, this schizophyllum commune, which is a very, very common, it's a, called a split gill mushroom. It grows all over the world on deadwood everywhere. You hundred percent, you've seen it before. Just didn't know what it was. Uh, it has like 23,000 different combinations of mating type alleles and like quote unquote. Genders. Wow. So that's, Pretty mind blowing. <laughs> Christ. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, speaking of just the sheer amount that we're talking about, I mean that that's ridiculous. But like the amount of mushrooms that are just around us. Like mm-hmm. you mentioned that there's, you know, several different types of species that could be just underneath our soil, but like I mean there could be like thousands, right? Like like the mm-hmm. so called dark taxa of DNA studies that have shown like thousands of different fungi in just a single sample of soil. Mm-hmm. what is that about well i mean that's that that's about? that's the that's the diversity of of life in some sense that we have sort of massively undercalculated things that we can't see right all of human biology has been based on anthropomorphic like just projecting human stuff onto nature right mm-hmm. we only care about mushrooms because that's what we can see that's what we can eat and through much of scientific study we've sort of ignored what we can't see and microbiology is is the the process of essentially trying to take things we can't see and make them visible and trying to understand them through the lens of their own experience. Um, for me, it, what I did for my PhD was spending seven years trying to explain my science to winemakers and another sev- same seven years trying to explain my winemaking to scientists because neither of them really understood what the other one was doing. But I was coming at it from the perspective of like, hey, I care about yeast which is the powerhouse of how you're actually doing fermentation here, actually making wine, but getting people to empathize with a single celled fungus is not all that easy. <laughs> Turns out the human experience is a lot easier to project on something that like a dog, like, Oh, that dog is so sad. And no one looks at a yeast and goes, that yeast is so sad. But what I can do is I can smell a fermentation tank and be like, Ooh, that's stinky guys. Your yeast is sad, right? Your temperature is not good. Your nutrients aren't good. I can smell them pumping out stress chemicals that they're making because they're not happy. Uh, and so learning to look at nature and understand um, things from a fungal or microbial perspective is difficult, but not impossible. And that's part of the fun of I have of science communication, getting people to like empathize with something that they normally wouldn't even notice. Let's talk a little bit more about your expertise with yeast and how this is the process of fermentation for mm-hmm. so much of what we enjoy today. I mean, just the fact that like you get, I mean, it's just so fascinating to me. It is very alien. Like I kind of understand McKenna's whole <laughs> whole <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. philosophy here because it's fucking nuts, right? You get like a sourdough bread starter and it's just mm-hmm. like you keep this fucking thing alive and mm-hmm. it's just bizarre. Like you can keep making bread off of it like you just split it off and it just continues to provide this bizarre thing and then it also the entire process of alcohol and mm-hmm. wine and beer i mean all of these things it's like it, and it goes so far beyond that i mean penicillin like so mm-hmm. many different sources of medicine 
and life-saving um, compounds mm-hmm. have derived from these types of substances. It's just right. it's right. really hard to wrap your mind around. But I guess explain like just yeast, like how insane <laughs> that is that that yeast is fungi and how that generates so much of what we know and enjoy. So, I mean, I think human beings have partnered with yeast for a very long time. And like we talked about, they're sort of ubiquitous with our environment. And the big thing that fungi do, it's very hard to make any general classifications about the fungal kingdom because there's always going to be an exception. You say one thing and go, well, there's an exception here. But one thing I can say with fairly good confidence is they are opportunistic. They are just waiting for their chance to do something that benefits them. So they're everywhere all the time, but they're usually kind of kept in check by everything else that's going on. So just like a yeast infection on a human being, we have candida albicans on us all the time. And again, candida albicans, the yeast that causes like yeast infections and human skin infections, is very genetically different from Saccharomyces cerevisiae. They are completely separate organisms, and I think people get that confused a lot. But Candida albicans is always on our skin. It's always there, but it doesn't cause a problem until we have a shift in like pH or some bacteria Mm -hmm. changes or we're a little too sweaty or too whatever for too long. And then it's like, oh man, these are good conditions for me to set up business. I'm going to, I'm going to become this pathogenic form of myself and like take advantage of this opportunity. So are they always ready to proliferate? Like the ones that exist on the human body? If, if you give right. them, if you give them the right yeah. conditions, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of talk about that um, that soundboard. You know, if the, if suddenly all the sliders get slid up to max, and they're like, "Oh, this is a really good time. We're gonna go for it." The yeast uh, is happy. Yeast is happy, and that's uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, the one that we do fermentation with, is is around. Uh, if you look at where it is in nature, its ecological niche is actually on the sap of hardwood trees. And so you can go out, and I did this in California, because most of the yeast that's spread around the world through human food production, wine, beer, bread, etc., genetically has actually come from China, I believe. So the origins of a lot of, like, fermentation stuff came out of genetic uh, history in China. And you can watch different yeast genealogies and stuff move around the world as a function of, like, the wine industry and, like, the things that are in South Africa look like, you know, yeast from Europe that look like yeast from China – Um, But if you go to those places and you go out into nature and you find a hardwood tree with a little bit of sap on it and you isolate yeast from that, you have a different genetic signature. So we did that here in California and tried to look at like, hey, what did California native yeast look like? What are the things that are endemic to California actually look like versus these things that we use in the wine industry? And that's tricky because yeast love to hybridize too. So in the vineyard, you see a lot of like yeast getting jiggy with it in fly poop and on the surface of grapes. And anywhere you have a whole bunch of sort of microbial activity, you'll have things like pooping and yeast sporulating and then mating together and all those mating types come together to kind of form new combinations of things. Uh, but we've been using yeast for, for hundreds of, well, not hundreds of thousands, but tens of thousands of years. Uh, and it, they just kind of arose spontaneously because they were around. And we always like to think that, oh, we as human beings have cultivated all these yeast and traded them all over the planet. And I'm like, well, how do you know the yeast didn't just choose us? We're these big hairless monkeys that just leave out big pots of sugar for them to ferment and then keep giving them more opportunities to do it. Like maybe they just keyed into our biology and was like, sure, we'll make you toxic byproducts. You guys get drunk, we'll eat, you know? Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, exactly. What I was going to say next is like it, it's traced back to what, like 7000 B.C., um, in China, right? Like the mm-hmm. first, I guess, for use of fermentation. But it is, mm-hmm. it's interesting to think like this perhaps was just 
totally accidental. It's just like humans just left out like a fucking compost pile of berries or whatever, and then yeah. it just became like fermented, and then some yeah. some guy was just like, "I'm gonna drink this," and, and then just got wasted. Yeah, I mean, the the funny thing is, you know, through most of human history. Uh, they were making versions of beer. It wasn't like our current version of beer using like hops and barley and that kind of thing. It's like only came around in like the 14th, 15th century. But before that, they were making what were called gruit beers where they'd um, – the thing they didn't fully understand was that by brew, by like boiling the water, they were sanitizing it. And through a lot of history, people would drink like low alcohol beer essentially, some sort of fermented grain beverage. Uh, because it didn't have, you know, wasn't riddled with like dysentery and, you know, shigella and other things that could just like totally mess you up. Um, so boiling your water was a first step to like being safe, but then also having a small amount of alcohol could basically nothing pathogenic can grow below uh, pH of about 4.5 and with a little bit of alcohol. So people always find old bottles of wine. It's just, is this safe to drink? Or like, yeah, it might not be good, but it's safe to drink, you know? <laughs> right. It's funny to think like probably everyone's tried to f ferment everything, you know, like yeah, everything's been tried because it's like, how do you go from like barley to like agave? I mean, mm -hmm. you can assume that like it's all been done, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, just... and, it, and if you look at it, that's the same trade-off that's happening between plants and fungi. Even we as human beings are doing some processing to make the sugar more available, but the fungus is essentially saying, ooh, cool, plant sugars. We know what to do with those. And then what yeasts are doing is they do alcoholic fermentation. They can do oxidative metabolism if they give them enough oxygen, if you keep them stirred up enough. But they like doing alcoholic fermentation because it gives them a big competitive advantage. Uh, if there's a lot of bacteria there, the bacteria will outgrow the yeast very quickly. Uh, but back, but yeast are able to suck all the oxygen out of a solution, which means the bacteria can't do anything because bacteria need oxygen. Yeast suck all that, that oxygen out, and they drop what's called the redox potential. This is, again, they're transforming their environment to make something that only they can kind of do business in the, in the conditions that they set up for fermentation. And then they start doing alcoholic fermentation, which produces a toxic byproduct that also inhibits the growth of other organisms. So they get to something, and they're like, wow, this is like a teeming party, but we're going to shut it down and take over by doing these sort of fundamental cellular processes and producing alcohol because it gives us a competitive advantage. And even though we're eventually going to kill ourselves by fermenting, we can survive this whole thing. And it's, it's our niche. They've created this way of living life that allows them to kind of dominate an environment. Um, and if you think about yeast, do that in fermentation. And then you look at the rest of nature and like, oh man, are fungi doing this everywhere all the time? <laughs> well, we know that they are just inside of us all the time, which is mm -hmm. amazing to think about because there was a 2019 study published by the National Library of Medicine that found, what, about 81 different species inside mm -hmm. the human lungs at wow. any given time. That is yeah. wow. hard to wrap your mind around. So yeah. what the hell are these spores doing? What, what are they doing here? Well, Why are they in my lungs? <laughs> What's there's, going on there's, here? There's some, like I talked about, like ubiquitous, right? You mentioned it in the, in the intro. We're sitting here breathing in fungal spores. If you've ever had mold in your kitchen, there's mold spores all over your kitchen. But it's about when they have the right conditions to kind of activate. And you'll see this because like, you can have like an orange out in the counter and it'll sit there for months and nothing happens to it. And then sometimes you have an orange in the counter, it gets a mold spot and the whole thing turns to crap right away. Um, a lot of that has to do with like what's called water activity. So fungi need water to kind of get activated. And if there happens to be an area where there's not enough airflow or something like that, there'll be a little bit localized pocket of moisture. The fungi uh, spore can sporulate and like start growing little invasive hyphae into whatever it wants to grow into, start producing enzymes. The whole thing goes soft. Maybe some bacteria come in, start degrading it, and then the whole thing turns to goop. 
It's just taken advantage of the opportunity that you gave it. And so within our lungs and within our bodies, fungi are generally fairly well resisted. We have a very good uh, immune system for resisting fungi in general, um, certainly compared to some bacteria and some other things. Like we're pretty good at fighting off fungi. Uh, but they can get established. You know, it takes them a lot longer to get established. And because we don't have very many good fungicides, we have lots of uh, antibacterials. And a lot of those uh, antibiotics have been actually derived from fungi because fungi are fighting off bacteria constantly too. They're like, I don't want to get degraded by, by bacteria. So I'm going to produce natural uh, antibiotics in my flesh as part of my metabolism to resist getting rotted. Uh, so we've, we've stolen those things and used them to, to fight bacteria in our own bodies. But having uh, these sort of fungal infections that can get established very slowly means it's very hard to fight them and we don't have a whole lot of drugs against them. Um, so people with compromised immune systems do have big issues with systemic fungal infections, especially like in the lungs or on the skin and stuff like that. But for the most part, we as human beings are pretty good at resisting them. And the more mushrooms you eat, the more your body takes those little pieces of mushroom sugars, incorporates them into your immune system, and then it's able to fight off fungal invaders. That's so crazy because it's like the, it's a mechanism to rot, right? Break mm -hmm. down matter, but then it also is helping you uh, prevent right. infection. Yeah. And there, there's we have a lot of like yeasts and things in our gut that are actively helping us break things down. They're they're symbiotic with us. They're they're very much part of our good own healthy immune or immune system and like digestion kind of thing. But some of those things, if you change the environment enough, like if, I don't know, maybe you took a bunch of antibiotics and the the microbiome shifted, that thing that was once symbiotic and mutualistic might now become pathogenic just because you've shifted who's around. You know, it's like maybe there's a, a big bully on, on the playground and then that kid switches to another school. Someone else will rise up and become a bully, even though, you know, it was before that person wasn't a bully. So there's interesting social dynamics within all this microbial stuff. Every time I see moldy bread, I think of my grandfather, who maybe this was a product of growing up uh, in the Great Depression, but mm -hmm. anytime the bread would get a little moldy, he'd be like, oh, no, don't throw it out. It's free penicillin. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so on that note, uh, and I, I am very guilty of doing this, just kind of trimming off the thing. Uh, generally, mold grows. It grows a lot deeper than you think it does. And it produces uh, bread molds and some of these other things produce aflatoxins, these mycotoxins, which are extremely carcinogenic. So like I am ex I'm very, very sensitive to the taste of mold. And if I eat something that tastes off of mold, I spit it out because I know that even that little taste of mold could contain a very high dose of our carcinogen, um, these mycotoxins. Ooh. So, so don't eat the moldy bread. <laughs> yeah, <you're> <laughs> yeah, I would, I would, it is not free penicillin. <laughs> no, no. And you don't know it's, you know, there is, you know what penicillium's on that we eat all the time? <laughs> what? Uh, brie, the, the, the nice oh. bloomy rind of brie, camembert, all those things. That's penicillium. And even the, on a, on a good dry aged salami, that kind of powdery white stuff on the outside, that's penicillium. And th those, that's where you want to have that, uh, that fungus because it's producing antibiotics and it's preventing bacteria, which really want to get in and eat all the nitrogen in the, in the cheese or in the meat. You have penicillium creating this buffer layer where they've helped dehydrate it and protecting it by having covered in penicillin. So brie and uh, salami is free penicillin. Well, that's free. Damn. But, you know. well, well, good. Cause I'm getting a lot of those. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, that's amazing. And of course, cheese is a whole other like fascinating, you know, cheese and yogurt right. and all, all the way all, all of this has worked symbiotically with fungi. Um, mm -hmm. I want to just quickly touch upon the notion of plastic pollution and yeah. the fact that mushroom packaging 
could mm-hmm. help facilitate um you know, replacing plastic. So totally. first of all, I've read a lot of headlines that kind of overpromise, including <laughs> Fantastic Fungi, which mm-hmm. was a really like I, I was like really excited, but mm-hmm. then, you know, talking to you before, it's like, okay, maybe these things are being overpromised and maybe we should just fucking stop using single use plastic instead of being yeah. like mushrooms will yeah. break it all down. Yeah. Don't worry about it. It's like, you know, in the in the documentary it shows like a pool of oil. Right, and then this fungi um, compared to other pools. I don't even know what the fuck was in the other pools, but <laughs> nothing was broken down. And then the pool of oil was broken down by yeah. this yeah, yeah. one fungus. And then, of course, there's a lot of talk out there about how it can break down plastic. But then there's also the component that mushrooms can mimic almost like styrofoam. Like there's right, a there's right. this compostable mushroom packaging and that can exist, whereas styrofoam, of course, takes I don't know fucking a thousand years to biodegrade. Yeah, more, so I guess <laughs> talk about that. Okay, so th- there's there's two topics here. Um, one is uh, bioremediation, or or what's called mycoremediation, and the other is the idea of mycomaterials. So I'm going to jump into the mycoremediation okay. first, and we'll talk about mycomaterials after. And remind me, in case I get sidetracked. Um, mycoremediation is the idea that, like I said, fungi are opportunistic, and they're really good at breaking down complex forms of carbon. That includes potentially hydrocarbons and petroleum, because that's long, complicated chains of carbon. So there's evidence that there's a lot, a lot of different uh, fungal species and mushrooms in particular that can, in theory, break down uh, some of the bonds in plastics. The problem is a lot of those things are really just breaking it down into even smaller pieces of plastic. So Mm. making more microplastics isn't really ideal, (laughs) you know. Uh, and what you, the degradation of plastics in our environment is part of why we're having so many issues with microplastics because stuff is it's not that hard to break it down with like sunlight, UV, temperature, maybe some biological activity, but having more and more microplastics, if there's nothing that could digest the microplastic monomers and make it bioavailable again, then you're just microplastics everywhere, which is as we look at like declining fertility rates and human health and cancer and endocrine disruption, all this stuff is kind of where the microplastic stuff is pointing. Um, and the the idea with micromediation, and this is like this is sort of the what's presented in Fantastic Fungi, and I think is a, a disservice to the field in general, is that like, oh look, we can get oyster mushroom mycelium to eat a pool of oil. We've just solved oil spills. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, if you take oyster mushroom mycelium and dump it on an oil spill, jack shit happens. Uh, because the oyster mushroom mycelium is like, ooh, what's all this complex oil? Let's go eat some dirt and wood because that's what we want to do. That's easier for us energetically to do. You can take oyster mushrooms, uh, which are what are called white rot saprobes. So white rot saprobes have a very complex set of enzymes that can degrade uh, lignin and cellulose. And so they have, they're really good at kind of retooling these little enzymatic protein machines to break down different complex things. And that's where like you can get them if you force them in a very specific setting where it's their only source of food to break down something like petroleum uh, and make make biomass out of it, make food out of it. But when you put them in the nature, they're like, ooh, this is, we're not going to do that complex thing. We're going to do what we want to do. So it's really difficult to get mushrooms to do what you want them to do if they have their own mind. Uh, and we could, in theory, make a GMO and say, well, we just made a GMO fungus that eats plastics, and it's really good at that. But then if you release that on the world, imagine a world without plastics. 
like medicine would be can you have like a fungi that would infest a hospital and destroy all of the single use like medical <laughs> catheters and like we just like oh sorry your catheter dissolved inside of you buddy like my bad um, maybe that's actually how the how the world ends we invent yeah. a new species of fungus and then it starts like uh going in people's brains like that fungus that goes in an ant's brain and makes it like yeah, a weird the, zombie the, the cordyceps um so i mean the whole bioremediation microremediation thing the, there is promise there but the real promise comes from like going to an oil spill site isolating organisms that are there growing successfully and culturing that organism and trying to figure out how to maximize its conversion of something that's toxic into something that's less toxic and then recognizing that that is just one step in probably a multiple multitude of steps that have to happen transformation wise to turn something like toxic oil sludge back into soil and it's going to take it's you know as they say it's going to take a village it's going to take a whole microbial community and secession of different organisms each one of them kind of eating each other's poop to process these things and that's that's where i see real um benefit from using fungi and even bacteria and any any other organism we can get to create maybe like a giant sort of digester bioreactor type thing where we can feed plastic in one end and we can get out non-toxic soil on the other end but it's not going to be as easy as just hucking a bunch of oyster mushroom bags into an oil spill and saying, yep, done, solved it. You know, it's not it's not that easy, unfortunately. I wish it was. Um, and I think, again, that's where like a movie like Fantastic Fungi promises you these great things without actually providing any real solution or any depth into like how it's going to happen. Um, so that's that's the fun part with micromediation. And there's there's a lot of like burgeoning research into people that are looking at different types of fungi and particularly not even mushrooms. These are like single celled fungi and filamentous fungi. There's something that they found in like uh, Chernobyl that can digest radiation sort of it. Like it's not like it resists radiation. It's just really tolerant to massive amounts of DNA damage and has really, really, really good DNA repair enzymes. So it's like, I can, you know, live in constant state of sunburn essentially and still make a little bit of energy off of this like insane carbon source. Um, and it's just because fungi are so good at kind of retooling themselves to fit the environment or modifying the environment to fit them. Uh, that's, so that's incredible. Yeah. Like the diversification yeah. and the extreme circumstances that fungi can survive yeah. and adapt to its environment. Let's talk about eating mushrooms. Okay. Do you want to talk? Do you want to real quick? Oh yeah, sure. Let's talk about so, the mushroom materials. I so even yeah, forgot. Yeah, <laughs> so no, no, what you're so the, the materials thing. I've done. I've sort of done podcast episodes about every topic yeah. here. If anyone wants to like jump and hear my whole like thought train on some of these things, but micromaterials is really exciting because people are taking essentially like a mold of anything. You fill it with like sawdust, and then you inoculate with mushroom mycelium, and the mycelium grows through and glues all that sawdust together. And then you take it out, heat treat it, and boom, you have packaging material that's biodegradable. It's made of mushroom mycelium and sawdust, but because it's dried out, it can last you know, indefinitely. But if you get it wet and break it down, boom, it's back to being like sawdust, digested sawdust and soil, like almost immediately. So that's really cool because we're looking at using stuff like that to do insulation, to do packaging. Um, you can also use fungi to create biopolymers. So you can make fungi make units of stuff that's like plastic and then do a little bit of chemistry to glue it together and essentially make like imagine saran wrap that you didn't have to feel guilty about because you're like this is made of mushroom polymers and it will eventually go back to being mushroom polymers which won't take as long to break down as like plastic polymers and it's a, i mean it's, it's just crazy it's like it's like the only alternative that i see today is like corn you know like <clears throat> corn products that are mm -hmm. like plastic silverware and stuff, but they're made mm -hmm. out of corn. And it's just like, yeah. why are we doing this shit? Well, I mean, that's, yeah, that, that yeah. stuff's still even glued together. It's just plastic glued together by like 
corn paste basically so it's essentially right. just it'll break down into microplastics it's not even right. really truly but bi- it's biodegradable into microplastics yeah, right. it takes so, up all this agricultural right land. no exactly so yeah. why why are people not on this tip yet is it just because it's not as profitable or just profit. recently more yeah, we, ha- yeah. we have to make it profit there has to be some like some sort of subsidies there has to be some sort of you know oversight or incentive for businesses to do this too and i think part of it is like training consumer awareness that if people are like, hey, I really want biodegradable shipping materials. Hey, I really want you know sustainable packaging and single-use things. Like The industry can figure it out. It, we're not that far away from it. There just has to be an economic incentive to do so. And that comes starts – it doesn't start with the consumers. It starts with the companies and the corporations. But they will always do what's best in their economic self-interest. And so there has to be maybe a little bit of manipulation and pushing them towards that kind of thing to really get it to, to kick in. Well, it's um, there's disturbing. also like – yeah, yeah, mushroom leathers and and fabrics, Whoa. and so we could make fashion much more sustainable potentially too. But again, it's never at this point. It's never going to be cheaper to make like a mushroom leather couch than it would be to just kill a couple of cows. Right. So yeah, there has to be a market for it, and it's getting there. But still, it's it's just about scale, you know. Yeah, I think there's just this helplessness because global studies have shown that like the vast majority of the planet want to ban single use plastic, mm-hmm. but of course the incentive is not there to do so, and they're going mm-hmm. to push this to the limit. It's already yeah. completely destroying the planet, and mm-hmm. it, it really is unfortunate the individualization of like plastic pollution. It just we feel like the onus is on us, like we just yeah. have to recycle and reuse, and it's like no, I mean these corporations need to yeah. be forced. To change, um, and and they won't unless we force them. And it's not it's exactly. not at the level of the individual. It we you know you can recycle all you want, but your individual action on the, on a larger scale has basically no consequence. Exactly. But at the same time, you shouldn't go out and throw your trash everywhere. <laughs> There's <laughs> right. personal responsibility. Do what you can. Yeah, of yeah, course. Do what you can. Every little bit helps. And I I frequently when I'm going mushroom hunting and I'm like, man, I'm gonna find a lot of mushrooms. I'm gonna start picking up trash. And as I pick up trash, I'm paying attention to what's in the environment and I start finding mushrooms. So it's always been good luck for me to just pick up some trash. It is so. depressing going out into the wild and and seeing trash. I'm sure while you're foraging oh, yeah. for mushrooms. When Let's you're talk out in the about. Into the wild. I mean, I remember seeing Into the Wild, and of course, everyone knows the fatal end to that movie where the guy mm-hmm. mistakenly picks the toxic mushroom that looks mm-hmm. like a, a edible mushroom. Mm-hmm. And I guess first lay out how you know you talked about how the the extreme amount of mushrooms, and of course, mm-hmm. even bigger amount of fungi species there are. But how many mushrooms are edible? Mm-hmm. And then out of that, I, we have to touch upon psychedelic mushrooms of course yes, the show's called dosed um talk about how many mushrooms are have psychedelic compounds and then just how many mushrooms in general are edible and then how many are okay. deadly okay so let's say in theory there's about fifty thousand species of mushrooms on this planet there's probably two or three hundred on one end that are good edibles there's probably two or three hundred on the other end that are pretty toxic there's probably i don't know a couple hundred that have psychoactive activity that are entheogenic. That's the sort of polite way to talk about psychedelics in a, in a sciencey way. You say an entheogen. Uh, but the majority of the mushrooms that are out there are just mushrooms. They're not edible. They're not toxic. They're not psychedelic. They're literally just mushrooms. Uh, and there's that epithet that I, I really hate, but people are like, oh, well, every mushroom's edible once. And I'm like, no, it, it's literally not true. There's a huge number of mushrooms that if you tried to eat them, it'd be like trying to consume wood. You know, do you look at a <laughs> block of wood and say, can I eat that? Well, only once. No, 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 you can't. You literally can't chew it. Um, so that that drives me wild. It's just uh, frustrating things to hear over and over again. But um, so there, there's a number of mushrooms that are good edibles and they taste great. 
there's a larger number of mushrooms that you could eat but really aren't worth it. Like there's a lot of things like, okay, I could consume this, but like why? It doesn't taste good. The texture's not good. Um, so the the differentiation there is the majority of the toxic mushrooms that end up killing people belong to the genus called Amanita. Uh, and that's the, the death cap and the destroying angel. And there's some mm-hmm. sort of different species as you go around the world. But basically, if you know how to recognize an Amanita and you stay away from eating Amanitas, your chance of accidentally consuming a poisonous mushroom drops precipitously. There's a few others. There's one that grows really commonly on like lawns all over the United States in summer um, called the vomiter. Guess what happens if you eat that? Oh, uh, Chlorophyllum molybdes, and it has little. It's the green spored parasol. It's very common in lawns, but there's a few things like if you avoid eating mushrooms that have white gills, you for the most part won't end up eating something poisonous. If you avoid eating small brown mushrooms that grow on wood, you won't eat a gallerina, which are also poisonous. Um, those things are poisonous because they have this uh, amatoxin, and they're small cyclic peptides that essentially kill your liver they bind to like the things in your liver that do business and just your liver dies slowly over like a 12 14 day period and, and then you die it's really painful um, there's another one called orlean which is in these cortinarius mushrooms and it essentially destroys your kidney like three weeks after you've eaten it so those are some of the scariest ones because like you can eat them and die like up to two three weeks later and not even really know what you know the thing that killed you um, most other things that make you sick in mushrooms cause really immediate symptoms and it's more like the majority of poisons from mushrooms is really just GI upset. So you get, you throw up or you have an onset upsets tummy or you just have diarrhea or you're squirting out of both ends. But like the dose makes the poison on a lot of this stuff. So mm-hmm. when people are getting into mushrooms, my recommendation is always like, A, never eat anything you can't identify. Um, only eat something that you're like 100% sure of. And even when you do do that, cook it really well and eat just a small piece. Because there's people who eat mushrooms that are edible. Like I've mentioned uh, honey mushrooms. That's a great edible mushroom. But some people get like an ups- upset tummy from, from honey mushrooms because they're kind of slimy. And anything that's super slimy has all these polysaccharides and cause issues for people. There's even totally normal edible mushrooms that people get issues from. A lot of people have an, an allergy to like oyster mushrooms or even shiitake. Um, or if you don't cook shiitake enough, it can make you sick and give you a really bad skin rash. So cooking something really well... And then trying a small sample is a great way to kind of like test something out to see if your system can handle it before you eat like three pounds of something. And then maybe you spend all night on the toilet. Um, (laughs) So those are good ways to kind of like test out, you know, you want to avoid things that are definitively toxic. You want to stick with things that are definitively edible. You want to cook them well. You only want to try a small piece. And you always want to like check with community and resources to make sure that what you're eating is real. Um, And that goes even for like mushrooms you might buy at the store. Uh, I generally don't eat raw mushrooms because chitin alone is something that can cause GI upset for some people. Um, you never know, like, button mushrooms are grown in fermented out chicken poop, but I <laughs> prefer to cook them instead of eating them raw. Uh, there's a lot of mushrooms like, like a morel mushroom, which are super highly sought after. Those are very toxic raw. They have these hydrazine molecules, which are very carcinogenic and can cause, like, neurotoxicity. But if you cook a morel for, like, 5-10 minutes, it's totally safe. You just have to make sure you cook it enough. So there's these little processes you can go through to kind of make things safe. Um, when we start thinking about the psychedelic mushrooms, uh, those well, are wait, usually... Wait, oh, yeah, go, go ahead. I want to jump in there really yeah. quickly because yeah, I just yeah, yeah. read something that totally blew my mind Okay. because you mentioned button mushrooms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Button, cremony, and portobello mushrooms are mm-hmm. all the same mushroom! All the same. Yeah, it's Agaricus bisporus. Uh, it's the same thing, and they're all just selections of different versions of the same mushroom. And how That's they nuts! 
Yeah. But they like yep. taste. I mean, they like taste different, though. So how does that work? They're just like different stages of their life cycle. It's different stages. It's, totally it's, it's different strains. Like the white button mushroom is just one that they got. Like, you know, mushrooms get brown because they're producing melanin. So I think the white button mushroom was just like a mutant that didn't produce melanin. So it's just white all the time. Wow. And they, you know, they isolated that like, you know, I don't know, something 100 years ago and they just grew it. There was a point in which the American mushroom industry was trying to figure out which mushroom to grow as our mushroom. And they decided on that one, I think, because of like, you know, consistent production, fruiting body size, all this other stuff. But they were looking originally at um, Clotosophy nuda, which is a great name for a mushroom. It's called the, the bluet mushroom or the bluefoot. And they, they grow that in Europe. Uh, and they're okay. They smell kind of like frozen orange juice concentrate. But they grow anything that grows saprobically, anything that's a decay mushroom is something that you can cultivate. If it's mycorrhizal, it's really, really difficult to get it to grow commercially because it has to be associated with a tree. And so the only mushrooms that we really try to cultivate that are mycorrhizal are like truffles because they're such high value. It actually tries, it makes sense to try to plant like a whole plantation of them and farm them. But almost everything else, we just say, screw it, we can't farm chanterelles, so we just get them from the wild. Uh, whereas anything that's growing on dead stuff, we can say, okay, we're going to take this dead log and try to inoculate it with shiitake or, you know, agaricus bisporus, the crumini button, et cetera, has to grow on kind of compost. So there's like three levels of saprobes. You have a primary, that the white rot ones I mentioned, like an oyster mushroom that can eat straight wood. You have brown rot fungi that can eat like semi-degraded wood. And then you have things that are composter that really just need to eat like completely decayed organic matter. Uh, and so those three levels are what we cultivate mushrooms from. Well, it's trippy that you said that there's like a trippy, there, there's like hundreds <laughs> of uh, psychedelic ones of psychedelic properties. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of wild. Cause like, I think th there, there's only like a couple that maybe people know and like use. Right. I mean, I'm from Florida where people just like, you go oh, to just any yep. cow pasture and yep. just pick them off of cow poop. And those are like the guaranteed psychedelic right. mushrooms. But even within like that world and like, you know, the sale and purchase of psychedelic mushrooms and everything it's i think it's all pretty much like one but like so there's all these other ones out there is it because like maybe they're not as popular because they have other like negative side effects or like what is how how so, why is it so like small the actual market for the psychedelic ones um a lot of it just comes from like the history of how we started taking them what you mentioned is called psilocybe cubensis so that is, and it, I think it's originally from Cuba. It was first, you know, isolated in Cuba. It's a subtropical strain. So its range is like Cuba, Florida, parts of the south, southeast. And outside of that, it doesn't really grow anywhere else, like naturally, unless we've put it there. Um, because it needs fairly warm, fairly humid temperatures. And like you said, there it's like all over the place. So it's ubiquitous. It's growing in cow poop. It's growing in piles of whatever. Uh, and it's fairly identifiable too, right? It's this like relatively large mushroom that stains easily blue and has brown spores. And that's for psilocybe species. Those are sort of the core things you need to look for. It has to be a mushroom that stains visibly blue. And that's the oxidation of uh, psilocybin. There are other blue staining mushrooms. There's a lot of boletes that if you injure them, they'll stain blue. That has nothing to do with psilocybin though. That's just a different organic acid that also turns blue. So you need these small uh, relatively small mushrooms that stain blue and then have brown spores. And you need to be really careful about selecting that because there are multiple other mushrooms that can be mistaken, like anosobes and gallerina, and those can be deadly toxic lookalikes to psilocybe um, mushrooms. And this is one of the reasons that if you get into hunting magic mushrooms, like you really need to know what you're doing and don't eat something just because you're excited because you could literally end up killing yourself if you're not careful. Uh, that's much harder to do if you're out foraging edible mushrooms. You're not going to mistake chicken of the woods for a deadly amanita because they look so insanely different. But you might mistake a psilocybe for an anosobe and die. 
and get it wrong or something like that. Uh, there's also a bunch of other mushroom genera that have small amounts of psilocybin, but aren't usually considered part sort of active. I think there's like a Penalia species and there's a few other ones. And, you know, if you go on one of these like mushroom nerd forums and say that psilocybin are the only active mushrooms, a bunch of people will come out and say, no, 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 there's this one and that one. And you're like, okay, fine. Like there's, there's more than just psilocybin, but the majority of the mushrooms in the world that produce um, psilocybin and we consume as magic mushrooms belong to the genus psilocybin. But outside of Cubensis, there's a whole bunch of, there's a whole world of species. Um, so there's a guy named Alan Rockefeller. He's, he's good friends with Joey, the your crime pays but botany doesn't guy. And Alan has dedicated his whole career to uh, genetically categorizing, identifying, and publishing on psilocybin mushrooms. So he goes down to Mexico every year and like has identified a bunch of new species that are down there. So all over the world, there's psilocybin species that are just kind of hidden and unrecognized. But they're out there. Like we get ones here in wood chip beds all in California. Like people are always like, what's the best place to find magic mushrooms? I'm like, actually, it's like the parking lot of like a Bank America or like an apartment building. Somewhere they water <laughs> wood chip beds is probably where you're going to find these little wood decay psilocybin mushrooms. But those are the ones you need to be really, really careful about like the identification because it could be something else that might not be good for you. So That's incredible. And as we know, I mean – mushrooms have this whole other component. I mean, the psychedelic use of mushrooms, the fact that this has been culturally baked into indigenous cultures for mm -hmm. thousands and thousands of years. I mean, it's hard to trace back. Of course, you could entertain the stoned ape hypothesis about, you know, how did our brains double in size? How did we go from, you know, the, the walking, you know, the apes walking around to the thinking and, you know, mm -hmm. hyper aware you can, the, like why people microdose today, of course, but mm -hmm. Terrence McKenna took it one step further and talked about how culture and language all potentially evolved from the foraging of psychedelic mushrooms. But you look at like even ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, there are nods to mushrooms mm -hmm. being revered within just ancient species, which is really fascinating to me. There's tales of like Santa Claus, mm -hmm. um, even going back to the use of psychedelic <laughs> mushrooms, sure. explaining yeah. you know, the, the flying elf, bringing them presents, the, well, the yeah, that's, that's red a, and a white. <laughs> different kind of entheogen in uh, Amanita muscaria. Um, let me back up. So the, the yeah. stoned ape hypothesis is very much something that I think was come up with by someone who was on a lot of drugs and yeah. it makes sense if you're on a lot of drugs if you back up a little bit and look at like human evolutionary history it doesn't make a lot of sense because there's not evidence that it somehow in like one period of time it just like the human brain gained so much it was like the slow you know consistent uh evolution of language and communication and social dynamics and stuff over like many hundreds of thousands of years within like you know neo-human uh, communities and stuff like that. And you can look at the, like the genetic history of there's like this Fox two P gene. That's very like intimately involved in language and look at how that evolved. Like that makes more sense to me about how we evolved language and thought processes. Like did, you know, prehistoric humans eat slosby mushrooms off of animal dung? Maybe. Did they have a great time tripping? Probably. Was that like maybe the invention of, of aspects of spirituality or other parts of human cognition? Possibly. But again, we don't have any hard evidence for that. There's no fossil evidence for it. We do have genetic history that we can track and look at and say, wow, all of these things associated with like language and so on have evolved over X number of millions of years. It's not like there was like one period where it just all turned on at once. And, you know, it's not like somebody ate psychedelic mushrooms and suddenly became this like shining human thing, despite what you might see in like an Alex Gray illustration of all those, you know, um, psychedelic sort of things coming out of your head. Uh, 
Right, so, and we know from mere tests and stuff that other, I mean, other um, entities embody, you know, similar types of, like, consciousness and stuff. So it's not that humans were unique in the sense that suddenly we discovered psilocybin and then became, you know, the conscious, sentient beings that we are today. It, right. it, as you mentioned, it's, it's, it's kind of a leap of faith there. It's fun it, to entertain, it, and I, and is, I love McKenna, and I, and I actually do love even entertaining the notion that alien that this is an alien thing because it is so alien and hard to wrap your mind around but it's but it is really just so important to understand like this this like again like the cultural aspect of embracing the ethnogenic materials and having Mm -hmm. that be such a core part of spirituality for so many civilizations right um and it you know and of course the criminalization of these things and now the post prohibition era where you mm-hmm. see a lot of like silicon valley startups you see a yes. peter yep. teal startup in oakland selling fucking magic mushrooms in yep. oakland and it's like yep. hold on hold on hold on hold on like yeah. what is going on it almost feels like there is this kind of notion of like utopianism where it's like every it's almost like like the productivity now like saying like yeah like everyone's fucking needs to microdose and it's kind of taking <laughs> away from like what this spiritual like this really big power right, right. that these mushrooms hold and it's kind of making it into like this weird capitalist thing again yeah, it's, like it's, caffeine. The commercialization of it is is strange um there's so like on a on a basal level what happens when you take a psychedelic and when you take specifically psilocybin is you get the reduction in activity in what's called the default mode network. So there's these like two regions of your brain that are essentially the seat of consciousness and ego. And when you take psilocybin, the crosstalk between that ego part of your brain calms down and all the other regions of your brain light up. So you start getting more activity from the rest of your brain and less of your own personal ego in the way. And you start viewing things more objectively because you don't have your emotional overlays that you're kind of putting on top of it. And so why it's been the basis of spirituality for a long time, I think, is because if you consume an entheogen and then look at the world, you see it from a very different perspective and you see yourself as much a much smaller part of a much larger world. Whereas I think the rest of the time, we're so human-centric that everything is mirrored through the lens of our own experience and our own minds. And so, like, in the sense of, like, entheogens being really important to spirituality over long periods of time, I think that that is very uh, profound and, and real. And the scary thing we see now is like you're talking about this kind of commercialization of that thing. And we're looking at these cultural practices and saying, well, some startup guy selling this thing for like microdosing Silicon CEO Valley guys. Like, is that equitable? Is that right? Is that cool that we're taking this thing that was this like cultural practice and just kind of like throwing it at rich guys with Teslas and like making them feel better because they have egos that are out of control and maybe their ego needs to be knocked back every once in a while like i think i think you know i'm on the side of like hey if we could take every like member of congress and put them through like one of those little johns hopkins mushroom trips maybe we'd have more empathy towards the people of this country because all those people would realize that they're not so such a big deal and that like normal people deserve a shot at a fair life too but i don't know i know i always talked about dosing the punch bowl at a congressional um, meetup or something like that but then then again after like living this long and meeting a lot of people who are kind of like psycho not affiliated i i almost mm-hmm. tend to think like i was wrong about that that sometimes it can reinforce you know psychedelics can only show you what you already are and, yes, and a reflection yes. basically yep. to the extension of who you are and so it yep. doesn't necessarily make you a better person it may be maybe at the time you are more empathetic for that period of time but it's like mm-hmm. what do you use that for and it could reinforce really bad egoistic qualities and give you a god complex and i see <laughs> that this this it is like a weird trend and i'm 
curious and also kind of alarmed at where it's going in terms of like the proliferation of like microdosing across the tech industry. But um, but it is, and it's not for everyone too, right? Like that's another yeah, no, thing. It's kind of like some people, this, it's, it's yeah. very much a drug, and you can throw right. off your internal. It's it's one of the safest drugs that exists. But if you have a mental state that can't take that science right. of the ego or your chemical stuff, like it can really mess you up if you're not ready for it. And also, like the set and setting of these things is super important too. So. Right, like the hero dosing that McKenna talks about. Like you, mm. you got to be like a certain. You got to be cut from a certain type of cloth to like do yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of I, shit, I think, man. Like, I think the microdosing <laughs> thing is safer because again, it's the same thing as when you eat mushrooms, right? Like I'm talking edible mushrooms. Like right. I can eat some people. The chicken of the woods is one of the great beginner mushrooms. It's this big orange, bright yellow polypore that grows on trees. There's nothing that really looks like it it's you're pretty safe if you're going to go forage it but one in 10 one in 20 people will violently you know vomit after consuming this mushroom you'll vomit more if you eat more of it mm-hmm. so if you have a small piece and you feel a little queasy don't eat more if you take a microdose and you feel not so good don't go out and take a heroic dose you know <laughs> <laughs> you might break your brain and that's not a good thing to do so. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. It's not for everyone. But um, but of course, it is a beautiful thing. And, you know, the, the psychologists, of course, are are I, I'm glad that it's becoming normalized to the, to the point where it's now being accepted as perhaps, you know, solutions for things like depression, you know, mm-hmm. potentially helping people deal with terminal illness. And of course, as we know, and I can attest to that, um, that it 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 is one of the only things in adulthood you know as you mentioned fire the conductor let the orchestra play this is the way that you know <laughs> michael pollan and others have described what yes, what psychedelics yes. do to your brain yeah, but totally. you know it's one of the only things that can truly make you alter your capacity to empathize and think critically in adulthood as your mm-hmm. ego has been very firmly instated right. and which is really fascinating you know and this is this has been proven after only one dose of psilocybin people have mm-hmm. become more open to new experiences and more empathetic in general and that that's pretty shocking when you look at just how rigid you know humans can be mm-hmm. um and of course unlocking that kind of intellectual curiosity or the creative energy that that were stifled as you know the childlike imagination <laughs> that um can really be unlocked in terms of your mm-hmm. artistic and creative expression yeah I mean, the the way i like to think about it is it's um your brain over time is kind of like a whiteboard in like a conference room that just keeps being scribbled on. And no matter how, how hard you go at, at with the little dry erase marker, it's never going to like be clean. Tabula it, rasa. <laughs> yeah, it just gets worse and worse and worse. You can see that someone wrote something on the board like, you know, two years ago and the outline of it's still there. Uh, that's that's you reliving an experience from, you know, ages ago. You're like, why do I still feel awful and guilty about that one time I was at a party and I changed the music and someone didn't like, you know, whatever it is, what stupid thing is nailed into your brain and this obsessive repetitive thought pattern. Psychedelics is a little bit like the janitor coming in, spraying the whole thing with alcohol and wiping it down clean with a cloth. And you come in on Monday morning, you're like, oh, wow, I can, I can write clearly again. I can think clearly again without the distraction of all the background stuff. So Totally. Um, let's... Anyone who wants to call in, please call in if, with your questions. Um, but I, I wanted to get into a couple of fun things like what are your favorite mushrooms? Talking about some of these cool ass <laughs> mushrooms, like one of them that can liquefy itself if you don't eat it quickly enough. Oh, yeah. The oh, one yeah. that Mike talked about where it infects like an ant's brain and then makes the ant oh, commit yeah. suicide. Like, <laughs> I mean, there's some crazy ass mushrooms out there. Yeah, there's just absolutely insane lifestyles that they live. Um, 
see, where should we start? Uh, yeah. I, I'll do I'll do two of my favorites. Okay. Um, so there's my favorite, and this is like the lock screen on my phone, and I kind of referenced this right at the start. There's one called Hynellum pecii. It's called the, the bleeding tooth fungus. And this is inedible. It's bitter. It's not toxic. Everyone thinks it's toxic because it looks like it should be. Uh, when it's first growing up, it's a little white nub that comes out of ground. Holy shit. Everyone Google this right now. Oh, yeah. This Google is Google and Pecky. It's like a zombie it's, mushroom, it's, dude. Yeah. It looks, it looks absolutely good. Sometimes they call it strawberries and cream. Uh, so it's a little white nub. And it's growing so fast that it does – it's sweating. Like uh, if you were running really hard, you would sweat. If you were, if you were growing so fast, uh, you would end up sweating basically because your metabolism is working overtime. You're just breathing and, and sweating. And so it comes out as what's called gutation. And it's these like brilliant red droplets. And I think the color comes from like polyphenols. Um, so they're, they're fairly astringent and fairly bitter if you taste the liquid. Again, it's not toxic. It's just red. And those are just like finding different species of hydnellums that have like different colors of gutation is one of my favorite things to like find and photograph. Um, polypores in general often have some level of gutation on them when they're young and they're growing really fast. And I just like, from a visual perspective, it's one of the coolest things I've seen in nature. And I finally, I had been searching for that mushroom particularly for years. And I finally Where is found it? it last fall. Um, I mean, it, it grows under, I think in, I found it in Mendocino under some pine trees. It'll grow potentially around the world, depending on the tree type. It's a, it's a mycorrhizal mushroom. So it grows in association with particular trees. Oh, uh, God. And eventually is it there... grows out and forms a sort of a big shelf. It has little teeth underneath. So it's not actually a gilled mushroom. It has these little teeth, um, but it's really bitter and, and astringent. I think you can use it to like dye fabrics, but for the most part, it's not something you would collect. It's just like cool to find it when it's in that phase. Cause it's just, just wild looking. It's just like oozing blood. Yeah. Like yeah. Really, yeah. Yes. Really, yes. It's very totally. true to the name. Check mm -hmm. it out. What, what are some other mushrooms that just look nuts? Like oh, this. Man. So that's, that's a, there's, I talked about basidiomycetes and ascomycetes. A lot of the mushrooms that look just really, really weird uh, are ascomycetes because the basidiomycetes make up the majority of things we think of as a mushroom, right? It's got a cap and a stem. You've probably seen some sort of polypore conch thing on a tree at some point. Um, basidiomycetes do make these things called coral fungi and they look, Romaria, Artemisia, there's these genus of fungi that look like a piece of coral, like uh, from underwater, just sticking out of the forest floor. Those. How do you? Those okay, really I want to cool. look that up. Tell me what, what uh, is like the layman term for it? Uh, just coral fungus. Oh. You can look that up. Coral fungus. Right. Uh, Let's check this out. And those, those are really, they're often vibrant colors. There's Whoa. Ones, there's yellow ones. Yeah, right. Those are cool. Some of them are edible. Some of them aren't so edible. A lot of them have kind of laxative like properties. So if you eat a lot of Romaria, you'll, you'll end up, you know. <laughs> Great. Doing that. Uh, I just made some jerky out of one the other day. It was pretty good jerky. What? Uh, but I'm careful not to eat too much of it because, you know. Dude, what's uh, crazy is like there's such a diversity of them too. It like literally oh, does so look many. like a coral so reef. Many. It's like purple, yeah. orange, yeah. white. Like, yeah. wow. Um, another one of my favorites, and this is one I think if you listen to like my first episode, I've told a story about like my first sort of memory of a mushroom. Uh, this is one called the, the parrot mushroom. Uh, Gliophorus pistaticus, but if you just Google parrot mushroom, it's this little slimy green thing, and it's Oof. like super green, super slimy. The word is viscous. Um, if you watch my TikTok videos, sometimes I'll find viscid mushrooms and just be like, "Ooh, so gooey," and people get really <laughs> either turned on or or skeeved up by it. Either way, I don't care. They're having an emotional response, and that's the whole purpose is to get them to suddenly care about something they would have otherwise not cared about. But dude, this uh, is nuts too. It really it, it looks like it's glowing almost. It's mm -hmm. so beautiful and so slimy so goddamn <laughs> um, slimy dude. so those those are all basidiomycetes i mentioned and then some really crazy looking ascomycetes and ascomycetes again look more alien and strange looking um the, the morel is something that you know is 
a fairly standard mushroom, but I think it's still pretty cool looking. It's these little sort of conical things with deep pits and holes in the cap. Uh, and then there's like elfin saddles and gyromitra, which are sometimes called false morels, but they're also ascomycetes. Um, and they have crazy looking sort of caps and elfin saddles look like little saddles that an elf could ride on. So we call them elfin saddles. Um, there's stuff like earth tongues, which are weird little black growths, or sometimes they're green or other colors, and they just kind of spurt up out of the ground and form a whole field of little things. Oh, I've Earth seen tongues. these before, I feel yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, geoglossum. Um, I don't know, there's, there's so many cool, like, textures and colors, and, like, I'm a very um, tactile person. I'm also very, like, smell and food-driven, so I think people are used to just looking at mushrooms, but when you get into uh, sensing them and playing with them, touching them, feeling the textures mm -hmm. of things, breaking things apart in your hand, smelling them. Um, you, a lot of mushrooms, you can basically put a small amount in your mouth to taste it and then spit it out. You don't want to eat it, but if you just put it in your mouth to kind of taste it and spit it out, sometimes you can find out there's certain things that are peppery. There's certain things that have kind of like spicy or horseradish or sweet or you know earthy or whatever. There's a whole world of sensory that goes on with mushrooms, which is really kind of exciting and cool. Uh, you mentioned that you had two favorites. Was what was your oh, right. So, favorite? so the Hydnellum, Hydnellum is my favorite to kind of photograph. And my favorite to eat is actually one called Amanita velosa. Um, it is sweet and nutty and has incredible, like meaty, almost like squid like texture. And it's just the, the, I think the best tasting mushroom I've had. Problem is it has toxic lookalikes. So if you don't know what Amanita velosa is and you go out looking for it, you might end up eating a death cap and dying. So this isn't <laughs> one that I recommend that people go out and look for. It's also something only like regionally grows here in California, particularly around like where I am in Napa. Um, but it's, I think it's one of the best tasting mushrooms I've had by far. Other than that, I'd say morels are probably my favorite edible mushrooms and those are all over the place. So you can, you can try morel mushrooms. Um, but you know, cool. Well, we have yeah. three callers on the line. I wanted to right, just go for it. wrap it up with one point that we were talking about before we mm -hmm. discussed this, which is just, you know, as climate change begins, uh, to advance in, in mm -hmm. really dangerous ways, like mushrooms you know we're not really paying attention to how much carbon is being locked in the soil from mm -hmm. fungi and this is another really important thing it's like as much as it is the foundation of life it could also really accelerate <laughs> a lot of the you know uh cataclysmic effects of climate change because we're not paying attention enough to working symbiotically yeah. with the fungal networks and you know the pesticides and the agricultural destruction the decimation of, of these networks is really something that we need to be aware of because yeah. it could have profound implications. Yeah. I mean, it, it's throughout history, we've just viewed fungi as sort of like the rest of nature, that it's this enemy that has to be tamed. And so we fought against it actively. And like I was mm -hmm. saying, like agriculture needs to change because if we keep dumping tons of chemical fertilizers in the soil, that causes plants to kick out their mycorrhizae because they're like, oh, we have all the nutrients we need. We don't need these fungal partners. But then the soil degrades because the fungi are the base of the complexity of biodiversity in that soil. And what keeps the soil sustainable from year to year keeps all the carbon and nitrogen locked in the soil because the mycelium is there and it keeps the soil in place because it's physically anchoring it and gluing it all together. So we need to stop using fungicides on fields in mass because it's killing what's in the soil. And we need to stop dumping so much fertilizer because it's not allowing the, the fungi to do their job and support the plants. There's also this whole idea of endophytes where there's fungi that actually live inside of plant cells, kind of like our microbiome. And maybe we could get away from using so many pesticides if we like looked at a better composition of the endophytes inside of a plant and it wouldn't need GMOs. We wouldn't need pesticides. We would just get like the right microbiome spray for a plant and boom, it would be fine. So... 
Dr. Gordon Walker. Stay with us. You have been incredible. I'm blown away right now. We have a couple callers on the line, and I'm excited to hear what they have to say. Mike, you want to take it away? Just want to say my favorite mushroom is or fungi is whatever one takes over the ant's brain and makes yes. it act crazy. Uh, whatever that is, if you've never heard of that before, uh, look it up somewhere because it's just absolutely nuts. Yeah, um, cordyceps and ophiocordyceps. Well, there's there's a really cool like planet Earth kind of type thing on that sort of. If you Google it, you'll find it. So is it like a whole family of fungi that does that to different things? Or is it just like mm-hmm. one random one that like takes over mm-hmm. the ant brain? There's a whole bunch. They're called entomopathic fungi. And even you referenced earlier, like the cicada thing, that's not technically a mushroom. It's called massospora. And it like mm. pumps psilocybin and other things into a cicada's brain. It makes it act what? like a weird, sexy zombie thing. And Wait, like, so it's actually wait, using what? psilocybin oh, to make it act crazy? Oh, oh yeah. It, it, like it, there's some evidence for small amounts of psilocybin and it bathes the insect's brain in these like psychedelics. So it doesn't realize that it's like being manipulated. Um, but yeah, cordyceps, what? cordyceps are crazy because like the mycelium takes over the body of the interstitial space of the insect and it become up to like 70% mycelium and then literally like is manipulating the insect to walk up a branch and then grow this crazy ass looking mushroom out of its head. Um, but cordyceps are crazy. <laughs> cordyceps are crazy too. Cause they have this whole, I mentioned like asexual and sexual life phases. So they live part of their life as like mold in the soil and then they infect an insect larvae and it's, it's a whole thing. You want to see really, really crazy pictures of mushrooms. Just Google cordyceps. Uh, my friend Damon Teague, Teague, uh, he's on Instagram. Um, Damon, D-A-M-O-N, and then T-I-G-H-E. Uh, he has some of the best and coolest cordyceps photos from like all over the world. He's amazing. So Holy shit, they wow. look like worms. Oh, yeah. That's just wild. My God. <laughs> that is the hell? freaking wild. Well, well wait, 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 really quickly. I just read yeah, yeah, also yeah. that Shoot. that mushroom that you just talked about is like the most expensive mushroom in the world. If you so that's like the Nepalese in Nepal when they go out and forge these things. It's even more expensive than truffles, like pound for pound. Uh, oh, so wow. that's because the Chinese believe it'll, you know, what do you think they'll really pay for? Yeah. Virility. Yeah. And it gives you a boner. Yep. It all comes back to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. We're, we're, we have four callers in the queue. Um, if you have a fungi question or comment, you still got time to get in the queue. And we're going to take the first call. Chris, Chris, please tell us where you are calling from. Chris, you're on mute. <laughs> you have to unmute yourself, Chris. That goes for all callers, or you get booted. Chris, Chris. you have five, four, no. three, two, one. You're booted. Chris, okay. call oh, back. Oh, Chris, you're back. Oh, Here, Chris. Chris, Chris, get, get, uh, Chris, Chris, get back in the get queue. Get back in the queue, and I'll bump you up to first place. Uh, <laughs> after we hear from Umit, Umit, uh, where you, tell us where you're calling from again, and take yourself off mute, please. Hey, you guys. I'm from the Netherlands. Um, yeah, well, uh, you know, I was here last week. <laughs> uh, thanks for, uh, for, for, for having me here. Um, mm-hmm. First of all, Abby uh, and Mike, I think also you've, you've had a wonderful week last week, uh, as I've seen and heard. Uh, <laughs> I, I take it you saw the Anthony Blinken confrontation? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Together with, um, oh my God, what's his name? Uh, Luis guys, Almagro. From BT News. Uh, oh, yeah, Eugene Perry. Oh, yes, Eugene. oh, yes. Yeah. he was wonderful. The guy who uh, was really angry, and and then, uh, uh, yeah, he said he said that uh, he was a was it a murderer? A yeah, it was yeah, pretty strongly was worded. It was it was pretty entertaining. It was great. It was great. <laughs> but you you've had a wonderful week, and uh, yeah, thank you for that. We're ending it off strong with some fungi fungi talk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, Gordon. appreciate you uh, gassing me up. <laughs> Thank you. Um, 
Gordon, first of all, um, um, I was really jealous when I heard uh, you talking about um, uh, people making wine and that you could smell mm. uh, the... the mm-hmm. um, yeah, you could smell if, if the, the, the wine is going to be good or bad, or am I correct? Well, it's, I don't know if it's good or bad, but I can smell what the yeast are, are feeling a little bit. You know, by the, the types of molecules they're making, you can infer how they're feeling in fermentation. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really really great because uh, just like Abby said a couple of I think fifteen minutes ago uh, about uh, cultures bacterial cultures in in yogurt or cheese or stuff like mm-hmm. that. I think it's comparable to that. Um, but I really hoped that you would talk about orchids as well. Could you tell us about orchids? Okay. Sure, or- <laughs> orchids flower? are cool. Yeah, yeah. So orchids. It, here's the thing that a lot of people don't know. Um, there's a type of plant called a mycoheterotroph. And this is plants that have lost the ability to do photosynthesis. So how do they get carbon? How do they get sugar? Well, they tap into the mycelial network. So these are like, they've been called obligate parasites. And while they've been considered parasites for a lot of like history, turns out that these things actually have a role in helping to like spread the mycelial network. So these are plants that don't do anything with the sun. They draw all their their, uh, carbon and sugar from that mycelial network. So that's a pure microheterotroph. Wait, so are, do orchids fit into this family? No, they don't. Okay. They're, sl- they're slightly different. This is, there's a lot of flavors of this kind of thing because plants and fungi have been co-evolving for literally billions of years together. Uh, <sighs> so orchids, instead, orchids have very... I don't know if you've ever seen orchid seed. It's minuscule, right? Most seeds are, are fairly large. They've got uh, a shell, and they've got carbon... They've got reserves of starch inside, and, and when you get them wet, they'll activate enzymes, eat up the carbon, produce a little plant, start doing photosynthesis. Orchids, though, are, have these like minuscule little specks of dust as seeds. They have no storage, no starch, nothing inside. What they do is when they get wet, they elicit chemical signals to say, oh, fungi, I'm just this poor piece of plant matter. Come eat me. So enterprising mycelium goes, oh, that looks pretty good. I'm going to sneak over here. And as soon as the mycelium touches the orchid seed, the orchid seed is like, ah, gotcha, bitch. And it, stra- it drains all the carbon out of the mycelial network. And so orchid seeds cannot uh, germinate, basically, without some fungal partner there for them, at least in the first part of their life, to drain all their carbon out of. Then they grow a leaf and they start doing photosynthesis. But this is because orchids are um, usually growing up in trees. And even up there in a wet human environment, there's a little bit of mycelium creeping around, eating stuff. So, Wow. It's pretty cool. Great, great question, Newman. Oh I was God. about to say this is a this is a fungi podcast. We don't want to hear about the flowers, but I, yeah, yeah. you were turned all out ultimately all intimately wow. associated. You know? Turned out you were right, wow. Umit. Umit, did you have anything else? Uh, you're on mute still, but um, did you have anything else before we get to the next caller? No, that was it. Uh, many thanks again, <laughs> Gordon. It was very uh, very nice uh, hearing from uh, mycologist. It was very good. It was a very good uh, episode again. Thanks Thank very you. much. Thank you so much, Umit. I really appreciate your support. Okay, next on the line, we have Kyle. Kyle, where are you calling from? Hi, I'm calling from Colorful, Colorado. Awesome. Oh, your mushroom season's yeah. going to kick off pretty soon. You guys I know, really... I'm getting excited. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they open up some new stores, and of course, it's decriminalized if you're found with a little bit of mushroom oh, on you. Go. There you go, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah, Col- Colorado, yeah. Oregon, uh, Oakland, there's a few places you can, you know, have some entheogens around, as they say. Nice. Yeah. I think I don't think they're selling spores at the stores now, but yeah. there's definitely places you can go and check out the different types of mushrooms. And the interesting distinction there is 
legally psilocybin is still a federally schedule one drug. So anything that has psilocybin in it is completely illegal on a federal level. But mm. spores don't technically contain any psilocybin. So in something like 46 states, you can sell and buy spores just fine. You just can't turn them into something that has psilocybin, but you can buy the Wait, spores. so that's – so So I thought my brother was saying that it's kind of like Amsterdam where they have the wet mushrooms, but of course they don't sell them in bulk. Like you can't just go buy an eighth of like so, psilocybin mushrooms. So Amsterdam cha- – you know, they used to be legal and then they changed it because too many tourists went there and got too yeah. high in the streets and did stupid shit. Now they sell uh, what are called truffles, which is technically not a mushroom. It's a uh, mushroom stress – thing called a sclerotia and it's a little bit like a mushroom tuber in that it grows to the point of almost being a mushroom but doesn't quite turn into a mushroom a full mat and then they chop that up put in a little vacuum sealed thing and that's what you can buy as you know truffles in uh, amsterdam and and those are quite nice and you have lots of different species you can try mexicana and cubensis and azarescens and all these different species and have slightly different effects because of the different uh, psilocybin subspecies and entourage effects and things like that. So. so are they selling the truffles here as well in like Oakland and stuff? Or are they selling the spores? Mm, you, I mean, you... Gordon, you're breaking up a little bit. I don't know what what happened. Oh, oh, Mushroom sorry. King. Gotcha. Uh, let me stop moving around. They, they stopped in Amsterdam. They stopped selling mushrooms, but the logic in the law was that they had to stop selling fruiting bodies, but sclerotia was still acceptable. That's the big thing. And here in the United okay. States, we can, you know, it's, it's illegal everywhere. You can sell spores because spores don't contain psilocybin. But sorry, uh, the, let's go back to the question. I, was, I just got on a tangent there. So. Kyle, what was the question? Oh, yeah, Kyle. What? Sorry. Sorry about that, Kyle. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Kyle, sorry, I just took over. <laughs> no worries. Um, well, I'm interested. I'm sure you've had your own experiences, but um, some of the experiences I've had have been different and similar in ways. And mm-hmm. I was told by a friend that, there can be, I don't know if it's called different levels, but maybe different experiences people have where, you know, one time they take it, things melt around them. They get a kind of melting experience. Another time they take it, they, they may hallucinate something like a, an object or a person in the room. And mm-hmm. for me, it's, it's been kind of like a, the first time I took it, I saw it wasn't like colorful, but it looked like somebody had gone around to every, every surface and in like a white marker. Uh, painted Dragon Ball Z heads all over the walls, all over the... And at the time, I was really interested in Dragon Ball Z. I was watching it, like, every every episode. And then, how, how much you were know, you on there, my friend? Well, I don't even remember. It was, it was so long ago. I think it was an eighth. I think it was about three grams or so. Yeah, that's a, that's and, a solid manifestation of what, what was in your head. Yep. Yeah. And I've had different experiences since then. Like, uh, the next time it was... It was Batman Beyond uh, faces oh, everywhere, okay. which is you know, kind of interesting because all their faces are like Joker's faces. does not faces. sound fun at all. Well, thankfully, their faces weren't moving. It wasn't like they were smiling or saying anything to me, but <laughs> at least they were just kind of stationary. Uh, but I've wondered if, you know, if you've heard about people's different experiences, if there's anything. I mean, I also have the closed eyes experience where it's just different patterns and mm-hmm. seeing different mm-hmm. things. And I'm trying to figure out, is this coming from my subconscious? Is this coming from my interests, my ego mm-hmm. or, or what? I would say all of the above. Um, I think it's going to, it's, you know, I mentioned uh, very quickly when I was talking about entourage effects. So different types of mush, you know, different psilocybe strains will have slightly different versions of the active molecules that are in there. 
So that can impact you differently. What you've eaten and consumed recently can impact things differently. Uh, if you take like an MOI inhibitor while you're taking mushrooms, your trap will last longer and potentially be more intense. Uh, if you are in like a compromised emotional state, you will probably lean into that more than if you were feeling really good. So like your set and setting of your own brain and then where you are and the interface of like the environment that you're in will have a big impact. Um, can socially be who, you, who you're there with. It can also be like if you have uh, discussions before the trip and then after the trip, you've then cemented experiences that you had as part of that trip. And so they become more meaningful and more significant because you've done kind of extra psychological work around that. Uh, a lot of people end up just doing it as a, like a party drug or a thing, and, and that's fine. But it's if you want to solve depression or other things, you need to go in. Um, this is the phrase I hear repeated a lot. And I think it's very true. You need to go in with intention, but without expectation. Yeah. So that's that, and that's a really important point that you can. Your intent is there that you maybe you want to tackle something that's difficult, but you can't come out with the expectation that you're suddenly going to have solved the issue that you went in with. Well, so if your intent was to see a bunch of Batman faces, you succeeded, Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, had this, I had this one trip. It was, it was amazing. I was, uh, I was watching a lot of, uh, spiritual stuff on, on, uh, different things and, uh, different symbols that, that are risen at a time. And I, I had mixed a little bit of mushroom with some, uh, LSD and, mm. and at the time the sun was setting and the moon was rising mm -hmm. and the moon was a full moon. And I could, I could see the Celtic cross all around the moon. Mm. And then I saw this like hexagonal grid pattern over the earth. And I think that was probably the most meaningful mm. uh, experience I had had on it. And I think I kind of like geared myself up for it. And I was trying to figure out, you know, how can I get back to that or <laughs> you know, how I can kind of control these things so it doesn't become uh, creepy or, mm. or I mean, worrisome, you know? The, the problem is we don't, we're not masters of our own mind. We are very much subject to what's in there. And I think if you want to have a particular kind of experience, if you sit around cultivating with the intention that you want to have a particular type of experience and you go into it with that being the mindset, you're more likely to have that kind of experience, but there's still no guarantee um, and again, you can always do things like manipulating set and setting in terms of like, who are you with? What time of day is it? Uh, what kind of music have you been listening to? You know, hell, are you wearing your favorite pants? Or like, I tend to get cold a lot. So I always make sure I have like a sweatshirt or a blanket or something around. And then I'm like, ooh, I like fuzzy stuff. And I like fuzzy stuff. So I just surround myself with fuzzy stuff. I'm like, this is great. You know, <laughs> I want to surround uh, myself with just different mushrooms now. Like all the ones that you talked about. Just be like, oh, <laughs> should I just trip out on the, all the stuff that you just told me about? Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> So I, I guess you're sort of you're sort of master of your own experience, um, and I'd say what's in what's in your head is is what's in there, and you know you're really going to be the only one who can explore explore that. So yeah, well that, that gives yourself the the time and the, the you know the insight into your own I guess yeah. conceived reality. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's it's interesting. I love it. But uh, great talk, and thanks for taking my call. I appreciate it. Thanks for yeah. calling in, Kyle. Thanks, thanks, Kyle. Take care. Appreciate you. Mm -hmm. Bye bye. John, you are next up. Hi, John. Where are you calling from? And thanks for calling. Hi, this is John from Trenton. Uh, great talk today, uh, Gordon and Abby. I've really enjoyed uh, everything that's been said so far, specifically the uh, part about mycelium and the tree networks mm -hmm. uh, working in symbiosis with each other. I thought that was fascinating. Listen, you talked a little bit about uh, the electrical impulses 
um, being delivered through mycelial networks and through these tree networks. Yeah, there's not as much evidence for like electrical signals moving between trees, but that was more yep. sort of like localized within like a block of mycelium. But yeah, there's there's definitely some kind of communication going on. We're not totally sure what it is yet. But. Do you know anything about the way that humans and these tree networks or humans and these fungal networks interact um, wirelessly <laughs> as a caveat? You mean like do, do cell phone signals or or other human technological signals like influence these the activity of these networks? Mm, kind of. I feel like uh, when you're among nature, mm-hmm. you sort of uh, your breathing slows down, which affects your brain networks. Like I know that certain types of breathing can get you in a certain uh, frequency pattern, which can allow for you know wider thinking or more creative thinking. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if these. Uh, Breathing patterns can be influenced by the tree networks, giving off certain frequencies that sort of sync our minds to this larger Mother Earth type so, <laughs> type of, uh, so network. So as far as I know, there's not any real scientific consensus on like frequencies, but what is very real and what happens when you go into nature is there's a, a Japanese concept called forest bathing. And this, there's a, I just did a podcast about this. There's a ton of evidence for, for this is that when we get into nature, there's a lot of those volatile aromas that I mentioned, um, terpenes, pyrazines, things that plants and, and fungi are putting up fungi, mycelium smells. There's all these octan one, three methane, octanol and all these things, alcohols and other stuff like this. And as we go through the environment a forest environment, we breathe in all of those chemicals and those chemicals have strong physiological effects on us. They regulate hormones, they regulate stress, they regulate different cell signaling cascades that like you said, can kind of put you in tune and frequency with the nature and in the environment that you're in. And certainly doing some breathing, some meditation, any kind of mindfulness practice will bring you closer in association with that environment that you're in. So there's, there's real science behind you go out into nature and you feel better because like breathing all that stuff literally is causing a physiological response that can reduce stress and is associated with a whole bunch of health benefits. Awesome. Um, yeah. So when you were talking about the mycelial networks or these fungal networks, uh, basically attaching to the roots of these trees, it reminded me a lot of the astrocyte network, uh, in the brain. You actually literally called them glue, which mm-hmm. is what we call glial cells in the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk to any similarities there between <laughs> the astrocyte network and the fungal network? So, trees? so in the, the book I mentioned Entangled Life by Marilyn Sheldrake, he, he does dive into this and how on some very superficial level, there is some commonalities between like brain structure and mycelial structure. The big difference there is that like neurons are differentiated cells that have like axonal things. There's other sort of center points of a neuron and these like, you know, dendrites and things that come off of it. And so you can watch very distinctly how like electrical signals move around in a network in a brain. Uh, mycelium is, is just fundamentally different because you don't have quite the same level of like cell differentiation or centers of uh, information. Um, there's lots of nuclei, but they're generally like relatively evenly distributed throughout mycelium. And although it is a big interconnected network, it's not organized in the way that like the layers of neuronal tissue are organized in like between gray matter and stuff like that. So um, yes, there's some superficial like comparisons you can make, but in terms of the way that like signal transduction works, mycelium is much less complicated on a like an inch for or you know centimeter by centimeter basis than like neuronal brain tissue. Uh, but they're fundamentally sort of similar. 
And it, but it, it, you really have to be careful not to say that mycelium is like a brain, even though it does display intelligent like behaviors. Uh, exactly. Want, That's kind yeah. of what I was getting at. Yeah. I would, I would go check out Merlin Sheldrake's Entangled Life book because he does a really good breakdown of kind of the differentiation and distinction there. And I think he approaches it in a very sort of non judgmental, interesting kind of way. So he, he did a great job writing about it. Okay. Thank, Thank you, you so John. much, John. Gordon, I know that you recommended several books. Is there a, mm-hmm. a good documentary that you could recommend about um, this stuff? So Fantastic Fungi is is fun to watch, but it's not a great documentary necessarily. It could basically be 20 minutes of time-lapse footage with some cool music. Uh, <laughs> and I and I think Louis Schwartzberg has that on Netflix. He has a, like just like these nature films with really awesome music and tons of great footage. Oh, cool. Uh, and I think that's he draws, drew some of the footage, his time-lapse stuff for fantastic fungi from that that work he's done uh, there's a movie that came out called super fungi and i think or it's only maybe only an hour-long documentary it used to be on amazon i'm sure if you you um google it you could find it but it's called super fungi i think it's from 2014 and it does feature paul stamets although it doesn't let him go quite off as far into the deep end of psychedelics as he does in fantastic fungi uh, and that movie has a little bit more about like the science, the mycorrhizal networks, um, the role that fungi play in nature. So that's a really good gateway uh, do- actual documentary if you want to watch something that's a little bit more sciencey. Cool. Uh, so cool. Awesome. We got Josh on the line. Hey, Josh, where are you calling from? Nice Avi, by the way. Cool tree. Hello. Hey, Josh. Hey. Um, I don't really have a question. I joined in pretty late into the podcast or the, the live podcast, but I will say that, uh, Abby, you and your brother's media roots, um, last series on psychedelics has really wanted me. It's, it's kind of, uh, sorry, I'm a little nervous. It's okay. Go ahead. Uh, encourage, encourage me to grow plants and I've got ferns. I've got some flowers. I've got tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Um, you're doing your own little bit of forest and, bathing there. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. And, and it's to the point where, uh, me and my girlfriend just enjoy sitting in the afternoon on the front porch, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so it's not a question, just a comment, but you guys have, uh, kind of inspired me to look at things differently. So Josh, that's absolutely it. beautiful and inspiring to hear. Where are you living where you can have this gorgeous oh. garden? Uh, Baton Rouge. Oh, wow. There's, there's some cool mushrooms down in the southeast. Uh, those, some of those swampy areas are a little bit too wet, but if you get to like the margins of that, um, there's some awesome fungal diversity down there. There's a there's an account I follow on Instagram. I think it's just called Only Mushrooms. I don't know exactly where he is okay. in, in Mississippi or something like that, but he if you want to look for an account that has like local mushrooms that you might run into, check out Only Mushrooms on Instagram. He's got great photos. I think his name's Scott. Well, dude. And Josh, uh, um, my brother's actually joining us on Dosed to talk about that series in the next uh, couple weeks, so definitely tune in. We'd love to hear from you again, and really appreciate your support, man, a lot. I, anything it, else you wanted to say? Well, two things. Uh, I've joined your Patreon for Media Roots. I'm not, I'm not trying to trample over this, this podcast in particular. Um, Dude, this one doesn't awesome. have a Patreon, so it's okay. <laughs> I guess my last thing, my favorite mushroom, besides mm-hmm. the fun ones, you know, mm-hmm. quote-unquote, uh, San, uh, chanterelle mushrooms oh, they're yeah. really meaty mm-hmm. they're really good in pasta mm-hmm. so that's it but thanks for taking nice. my call guys nice Josh thank you 
for your call. Um, you know, I want to be respectful of your time, Gordon. We've already kept you here two and a half hours That's almost. Our longest, so let's, uh, longest this is our episode longest, ever for a good reason. A lot of interest and an incredible conversation. Um, do you have time for one more caller before we I wrap got, it up? Let's do, let's do one more. i got to go to okay. parents, but I, yeah, I, okay. I, I love all these questions. So thank, I know, thank this you is awesome. For, for calling okay, Cologne. I think that's how you pronounce your name. You are next. Hi, where are you calling from? You are on mute. So unmute yourself. It's a little microphone down there. <laughs> Actually, while, uh, while I'm waiting for the clone to unmute, I, I do have a quick question. So yeah, sure. truffles, of course, oh, you know, okay. very uh, big delicacy, very yeah. expensive, very yeah. good tasting. Yeah. Um, why can't we just grow them? I mean, why do we have to look in the forest and forage for them and make them have these super expensive price points? Why can't yeah. they just be grown somewhere like in a box? So you can't grow them in a box, but there are trufferies, truffle orchards, being planted all over California. Uh, problem is they take like five to ten years to get established. They're Whoa. very expensive because you essentially have to take – they're growing European species of truffles, so uh, tuber species, tuber melanosporum, stuff like this, the black perigold truffle. And the way they make those is to take a bunch of truffles, expensive-ass truffles, put them like a blender, create a smoothie out of it, and then spray that all over the roots of a young oak tree or a young hazelnut tree. And then they have to plant them and water them as if they were in Europe during summer. What's really hard to do in California? Water a tree in summer. <laughs> so a lot of wineries have pumped thousands of dollars into planting these truffle orchards. And then they're like, well, shit, do we keep watering our vineyards or our truffle orchards? And they, a lot of the times they just stop watering the truffle orchards and then those truffle orchards die or the, the mycelium dies or they get contaminated because there's Chinese truffles that can contaminate trufferies and then those don't have the same flavor and are in superior. You can't sell them for as much. Um, there's even the, like the market for truffles is insane because they'll sometimes they'll sell Chinese truffles that have been dosed with like truffle oil as if they were real truffle. But then when you shave them on top of something, they have no flavor. Um, I did, I did a whole podcast episode about truffles. And it, goes, it goes really deep. <laughs> cool. Then well, but thank we, you. Thank yeah. you for that. And we got Cologne on the line. So where are you calling from? You, you finally unmuted. Uh, am I, can you hear me? Yes. Yes. We can. Hey there. Oh, great. Oh yeah. Uh, Vancouver, Canada. Oh, cool. okay. nice. Right. Yeah, it's a little bit cloudy, but like really refreshing out now. Yeah. So BC is a great place for mushrooms. Phenomenal. It is. It, mm -hmm. And it's like somewhat legal here. We have dispensaries. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Canada's and, probably one of the most liberated places, right? So. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, so that just, it's, it's good for opening up the, uh, the sort of like medical research side of it. Because I, from what I understand, there really isn't that much due to its illegality um, in different places but mm -hmm. uh yeah yeah listen uh, i just wanted to make it quick i wanted to get on and say congratulations on your new show i think this is a really really cool idea like idea the call-in show and just really awesome. super way to connect and uh congratulations and, and good luck in the future hey thanks colin i really appreciate that and isn't vancouver where they film alone or they did film alone um, I love I'm that show. Sure. I'm not sure. Uh, is that on Netflix or? Uh, it's out on what? What is it out on? Uh, like, I don't know. I just fucking got on awesome, Amazon dude. Prime it's just people who get dropped off in the middle of nowhere and just forage and and have make to it film work, themselves dude. trying to survive. It's yeah, it's pretty sure. awesome. Um, I would love to visit Vancouver one day. Thank you so much for calling in. Thanks for your support. And let's wrap it up because we've kept Doctor Gordon Walker on here for so long. We could keep you on for another three hours, my friend. If you like this conversation. There is lots more of it. Check out Dr. Gordon Walker's podcast, Fascinated by Fungi. 
right here on the Colin app. You can call him with your questions every week. And it's also, of course, available on other streaming apps. Follow Fascinated by Fungi on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Patreon, Twitter, and more. So definitely go to fascinatedbyfungi.com for everything all in one place. Gordon, you've been so awesome and patient going through all of my uh, layman questions, breaking it all down. Thank you so much for joining us. I learned so much, and I think everyone else did too. We had a great time. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Bye, Gordon. It's been a lot of fun. Okay, bye guys. Bye y'all. Thanks again to our live audience here on Colin. If you're not live, join us live every week here on the Colin app. That's where you can find where our next scheduled episodes are going to be. I'm going to take you out with some sounds of a pink oyster mushroom hooked up to a modular synthesizer. Thanks again for joining us. Thank <laughs> you.